0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying.
1: Beware. You're obsessed with her? And you're obsessed with her daughter! All
0: right, easy, Geraldo. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Judy Jergenstern. we're talking 100% Cotton, and we're not talking about Gail Weathers' bangs. And I'm Joe.
2: And I'm Trace, and we're talking, you're obsessed with her, and you're obsessed with her daughter! <laughs> <laughs> the line readings are just everything in this movie, really, aren't they? I was debating between that or my lawyer liked that. Liked that, that. yes. <laughs> Honestly, this movie is a gay man's fantasy, isn't it? Um, yeah, I would say a gay man's fantasy, maybe not a Scream fan's or a horror fan's fantasy. But, y'all, Ugh. we are talking Scream 3. Mm-hmm. And it is all for the cause of celebrating the start of our third year of this podcast. So yes, we're kicking it off with a three and we are going to continue the month with a bunch of threes. So have fun guessing what we're going to be doing.
0: This is true, yeah. I was looking back last year, and I realized we kind of did this last year, except that we only did it for the first two weeks. So we did Screen 2, and then we did Hostel Part 2, and then at that point, we just tried to find spiritual successors to films from the first year. This year, it's all third entries in franchises.
2: I'm really excited, and I'm also really happy that we're actually—we made it through two years, Joe, and, you know—
0: Yay. no one died
2: <laughs> well actually a lot of people died last year but you know oh what God. it's 2021 let's move on no we're supposed to keep it funny because that's what the writers of scream 3 wanted to do i'm sorry the writer and everyone else involved in scream 3 wanted to do except for wes craven he was like guys no he was like guys i just want to make music of the heart so <laughs> can we just move this along please there are so many things now joe you started this off by saying we're not talking about those bangs why are we not talking about the bangs you know what everybody makes jokes about the bangs.
0: Yes, the bangs are terrible. Fucking Courtney Cox recognizes that the bangs are terrible.
2: We've all had the joke. And now let's move on. I'm of the same mindset. And I think and I love the two two videos that she's done spoofing those bangs. But I Mm -hmm. think that once it once that happens, like once the the actor or actress who has been made fun of for two decades is in on the joke, I think then we can like stop. It was cute for a while, but I'm so tired of, like, mentioning Scream 3 and everyone's like, oh my god, the bangs. I'm like, yes, I, I know. I know. Yes. I know they suck. We all know.
0: We all fucking know. <laughs> We've made the joke and now it's time to let it go.
2: R.I.P. The Bangs. But that's kind of how I feel about this movie, right? Like, let's not beat around the bush here. Scream 3 is considered the worst entry in this franchise by many, although some people have moved on to say 4 is the worst entry in the franchise, and to that I say, fuck all y'all. But <laughs> there's a, a kind of a running bit of things that people don't like about this movie, and I have a little list, because I don't okay. want to harp on all these things too much. I mean, we will go into it a bit, but I really think that what we're going to discover while discussing this film and its production, is that its production is really, really what fucked this movie over. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is interesting, considering 2 had an equally tumultuous production, but ended up perfect. <laughs> I don't know. Right. So I've got a list of things that I think people, like, talk about the most when you mention Scream 3. And I just want you to say, love it or hate it, or if you want to elaborate and say, eh, that's okay, too. All right, toot it or boot it. Here we go. All right, the bangs at this point it's a toot let's okay.
0: celebrate the fucking bangs. roman oh no it's a boot for that one. <laughs> the cameos oh i come down 50 50 part of me loves them and part of me hates them patrick dempsey's cop uh if it's the hair then it's a toot if it's the
2: character it's a boot the comedy i like the comedy i think a lot of the comedy actually works so i'm gonna toot it the voice changer that can copy everyone's voices
0: that's a bit of a hollywood fantasy isn't it but you know what you gotta go with it to enjoy this film so we'll say
2: Oh, that's a boot for me okay parker posey bitch move on Come I know. no i know we all know how we feel about parker posey i did not <laughs> say the things that people hate about this movie I said the people the things that people talk about when they talk about scream 3 right okay no i mean to me parker posey is the highlight of this movie and i think for a lot of people she is, and that's really the end of my list, because we'll talk about why Nev Campbell wasn't on set for a lot of this movie. We'll kind of talk about how every character involved in Stab 3 has nothing to do except for mm-hmm. Parker Posey. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things, and so these are things that people talk about, and we will talk about these things, but I don't want this to just be, I mean, we, sorry, we don't want this to just be, like, a hate fest. I don't, <sighs> no, yeah. So Okay, tell me about your experience with this movie, Joe. Like, when did you first see it, and what, it, what is your relationship with Scream 3? Okay,
0: so I, as we talked about last year for Scream 2, I was fully on board by the time Scream 2 came out. And then it was so stunningly good, like shockingly, shockingly good. I was ready for Scream 3 the following year because I thought that this was setting the precedent. And then when Scream 3 starts to get delayed, I didn't get worried, but I was like, oh man, you know, where are my favorites? I thought I was going to get to see them. By the time Scream 3 actually shows up, I was ready to be excited for it again. And I remember I went opening night with my sister, packed audience, and the energy was there, but it wasn't quite the same. Like, you could tell the people were struggling with some of the jokes. They didn't love the characterizations. It just didn't all come together. And... I will say I haven't watched this film as many times as I have all of the other Scream films. Mm. It is my least favorite. But I have, I think, like a lot of people in the last five or so years, made a bit of a reappraisal of it and discovered, you know what, it's really not as bad as I thought. It's the weakest Scream, but it's not a bad movie.
2: I agree. I actually think that if this was just a standalone slasher that came out, obviously without like all the connections to Scream 1 and 2, like... I think people would probably like it a bit more. It mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been the hit that Scream was, but I think yep. that people wouldn't look at this and be like, oh, it sucks so bad. But I think because it's coming after the perfection that is one and two, mm-hmm. that's why people come down on it so hard. And also why when people shit on four, I'm like, y'all, four is like, a grand high step up from this. But <laughs> for me, like so this movie is either like a C plus or a B minus, given my mood any day of the week. I will right. confess that after I watched it this week, I was very much in like not a good mood, and so I was mm-hmm. like, that's a C plus.
0: Yeah, exactly. The
2: the thing that hey, okay, so two things. So before I get into my story, one, this is also a two-hour slasher movie. It's 116 minutes long, just like all the other films. I think the only one that's th- the shortest one is the fourth one with like an hour 45. But like one, right. two, and three are pretty much all two hours, right? hmm This is the only one, and on this rewatch especially, where I really felt the length of this movie. I yeah. do think this movie drags quite a bit. It has pacing problems, yeah. It really does, and part of that is because of Nev Campbell's schedule. She's not in the movie enough. But, like, I think even because the kills are so weak, and we'll get into the, why that is later, um, but, of course, everyone probably knows it's because of Columbine. hmm I mean, partly because of Columbine. Right. It's just, yeah... I didn't find it quite as entertaining. The funny thing is, and I don't remember if I said this on our Scream or Scream 2 episodes, although I probably did, I saw these movies for the first time when I was in 8th grade. And my mom was out of town for a week and my dad rented me a bunch of R-rated movies. And Mm -hmm. two of them were the first two Scream films. Yes,
0: and you liked this one the most at the time.
2: Yes, and and 2 was my least favorite. I really didn't like the ending of 2 with Billy's mother. But So, I watched the first two. I was like, cool, like, I get it. Like, I, I really love these movies. I, mean, I love the first one. I don't love the second one that much. And then, yeah, I made my dad watch the third one. So, when I got the third one, we had already returned Scream 1 and 2. So, basically, I watched Scream 1 and 2 once each, and then I just had three. And because it was the end, I went to this is eighth grade. This would have been like 2002, 2003. I watched Scream 3 at least five times in a week. Because right. I just had the VHS. Because <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: it was there, and you were in eighth grade, and you were starved for horror content.
2: Well, and I really liked it, and I really thought it was funny. And we'll get into some of like the weird shit about the movie that doesn't really work, but at the time, I really, really liked it. And some stuff I still like, some stuff I don't. Mm-hmm. It is weird, though, right? Like, you can tell that this is written by someone other than Kevin Williamson.
0: Yeah, I remember at the time really feeling it and feeling like the film was desperately trying to ape Kevin Williamson's dialogue. And, you know, we've had quite a few conversations about the second wave of slashers that are trying to do what Kevin Williamson did and don't do it very well. And in hindsight, I actually don't feel like Aaron Kruger is trying to do it as much. I think he's trying to keep the meta stuff but I don't think he's trying to go for that really playful witty banter as much as I initially thought back in two
2: thousand. I think that's my thing though I think I think he's okay at the humor. I think the meta stuff like we've we've talked about meta so many times, right, where it flows well, it feels organic or it's just like it mm-hmm. lands the thud, and I do yeah. feel like a lot of the meta stuff in this movie does land with a thud because. I don't know, maybe it's just my mood or something, but like, I I feel like no one, I've never seen really a lot of people do meta as well as Kevin Williamson. And, you know, we discussed this in our episode on Freaky on Patreon recently, but I think Tragedy Girls is a really good way of doing meta that that worked for me. But again, that's a movie that some people love it and some people don't love it because they don't like the meta humor in it because it doesn't work for them. So Mm -hmm. that's something with this subgenre of like slashers or horror where it's like really meta comedy that I find fascinating.
0: Yeah, like, why does it work sometimes and why doesn't it, right?
2: And and for specific people, too, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I just think it's really interesting, but there's never going to be an answer because it's all subjective. It's all for personal taste, and there's just no way to get it right.
0: Right. Well, I can tell you one of the other things that people specifically took issue with in this third film was that it was meta comedy about Hollywood. And if you look at the history of films that are poking fun at Hollywood, like set in the world of movie making, there actually aren't a lot of hits in that regard. Like people like to think that we want to see the glimpse behind the curtain and see how films are made. But a lot of the time films about making movies they're either hit or miss, or they're outright bombs. So this was already going to be a tough sell to move this film to Hollywood and set it on a production stage. And I think some of the the wittiness of using Woodsboro as a set, like the set piece that Sydney finds mm-hmm. herself in her old house, there's a lot of potential there. And yet I don't think that it works. And, you know, again, we'll talk about that because there's some scripting issues there
2: yeah no i i think that's because right, i think that the scene with sydney and her in her quote-unquote house is actually one of the more successful parts of the film so it's interesting it doesn't work for you
0: uh i mean it does but then when you hear the commentary that originally the entire climax was going to be set here as opposed to milton's mansion
2: oh. i do think
0: that that would have maybe lent it a little bit more of a stronger <sighs> final
2: god damn it yeah okay so I have started the commentary for this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. I feel like I always get about 20 or 30 minutes in because it's Wes Craven, it's editor Patrick Lucier, and it's producer uh, Marianne Madalena. Correct. And maybe it gets better as it goes on, but so they recorded it in 2000. They're talking, mm-hmm. what I love is they're talking about Patrick Lussier going on to do his directorial debut, Dracula 2000. And I'm like, Oof. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> whoops guys. <laughs> Wish you well, Patrick. Bye. <laughs> it's not super candid. Like, it's very much like, not self-congratulatory, but it's just a very generic commentary where they're like, oh yeah, we had this. We did this. Yeah. Like, no one sounds really excited. There's not as many insights into it as you would have liked.
0: It's also very funny because it feels like Wes Craven continually forgets things, and then he just kicks it to the
2: other two whenever he's like, right, what's that actress's name? But okay, I get that. But I also think that because of like how many different versions of things they shot... Like, Mm -hmm. I believe that he would have forgotten. Like,
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, folks, if you don't know the backstory of this, like, it's really easy to go into Scream 3 and think, okay, well, they had two fucking years to work on this script and get it to where they wanted it to go, and that is not what happened. Like, all of the issues that people have with the way this story is told, the characters, it all comes down to the fact that there was no script when they were shooting this.
2: Yeah, so, okay, that's a good segue. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Let's go into this. So, okay, I've got lots of information on this, y'all, so we're just gonna go and let's let's tell a story. Okay. So, Williamson's involvement, Kevin Williamson, the writer of the first two films, he had been contracted while selling his Scream script, to which he had attached two five-page outlines for potential sequels, which would become Scream 2 and Mm 3. This was to help entice buyers to buy his script for Scream, slash scary movie at the time, which worked out in his favor and craven was also contracted for two potential sequels following a successful test screening of scream and he did return to direct the third installment but as you mentioned joe this was very much a john carpenter doing the remake of village of the dam because he was promised that he could do a remake of creature from the black lagoon deal Mm -hmm. where he said yeah i'll do scream 3 but let me make this meryl street violin movie called music of the heart yeah (laughs) have you seen that movie by the way I have not. I I feel like I only know of it in conjunction with this film. I actually think it's really cute. It's probably a three star film. Like it's not amazing. It's not terrible. It's like Sister Act, but with a white lady instead of a black nun, and like she teaches kids music. <laughs> oh my god! Sorry, I just thought of like a black exploitation. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a black nun and a white music I'm teacher. <laughs> a black uh, lounge singer posing as a nun. It's just North right. Street being an actual teacher. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Um, okay. Immediately, this is where my eyebrows raise. So, Bob and Harvey Weinstein approached Kevin Williams in early 1999 to pursue a full script for Scream 3. Why that late? So, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about in Scream 2 last year, Scream comes out in December 96. It becomes, like, by February of that year, they had greenlit a sequel, and they were filming it, like, into spring, early summer. Right. Scream 2 comes out December 97. What takes them over a year to start yeah. thinking about Scream 3?
0: considering that the grosses are almost identical and Scream 2 started bigger, so clearly there was like that upfront demand that immediately when you see those numbers, you say, where's my third entry? I needed it yesterday.
2: So yeah, I have the numbers there. So Scream opened with 6 million, but as we discussed, you know, it it was one that like started small and then just kind of built and built and built with word of mouth, eventually grossing 103 million domestically. Scream Mm -hmm. 2 opens with $32 million and goes on to gross $101 million. So yeah, like that's a fucking hit. Granted, and well we'll, I'll move into Scream 2's box office later but I'm just perplexed like maybe it was schedules colliding maybe it was Craven saying hey Scream 2 was really stressful to film and the script leaks were nuts so I really don't want to do this right now Mm -hmm. don't forget too that Kevin
0: Williamson had also blown up at this point so he was struggling to do Dawson's Creek he was working on the faculty he was also preparing for his directorial feature killing Mrs. Tingle which became teaching Mrs. Tingle
2: also because of Columbine.
0: Yes. Oh, the Columbine of it all.
2: Yeah. but Actually, no, that, that's perfect. Yeah. So following, I know what you did last summer. He also did a short-lived TV series called Wasteland. We have Teaching Mrs. Tingle. I think that was also a thing because Teaching Mrs. Tingle slash Killing Mrs. Tingle had languished in development hell. And I think after Scream 1 and 2 were such huge hits, that was like Kevin Williamson saying, Hey, it's he my like, time I now. I also
0: want to make music of the heart, except <laughs> that mine is called Killing Mrs. Tingle. <laughs> it also stars Meryl Streep now. Ooh, actually, can you
2: imagine though? Oh my God, that'd be so. but it's it's Helen Mirren, though, right? Like that's yeah, but she is phoning it in I okay, I enjoy <laughs> killing Mrs teaching Mrs. Tingle. I don't it, it is missing the the bite that yeah. it needs. like it needs a darker edge.
0: It needs that fucking art writing and blood. yeah
2: yes that being said i do find it entertaining i think the ending is really fun I, the girl who plays the best friend who's the actress is really fun and mm-hmm. i don't think mirin is phoning it in i think mirin's really good in it maybe i just don't remember it all that well but i i remember thinking like oh my
0: god this is helen Mirren. what is she doing slumming in this kevin williamson film maybe it was just that i wanted more actually you know what yeah I, i'm mentally processing this as i speak. She and Katie Holmes sparring is good. Barry Watson is the weakling. Oh, Barry Watson, so yeah. He,
2: he, he The only thing I've seen Barry Watson in that I liked was the Christina Applegate show, Samantha Who, where she lost her memory. Oh, God, right. Because Ooh, he's, the, he, yeah. But but he's also <laughs> the weakest part of that show. Like, yeah. he's so boring. <laughs> oh,
0: he's so boring. You can tell he got everything based on looks. Which is also not at all in keeping with this movie. (laughs) That's okay.
2: So yeah, basically though, like when they approach Williamson in early 99 to do this, like Williamson's like, guys, I cannot. And also I think Dawson's Creek is still on this time too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So unable to develop a full script for production, Williamson instead wrote a 20 to 30 page draft outline for the film. So he expanded his five page outline to like something that's like, hey, y'all, here's something here, like get someone else to like flesh it out. Right. It was going to involve the return of Ghostface to Woodsboro, and that was going to be that. So, the wine scene's hired, and this is actually of note, so it's Aaron Kruger, who at the time was only really known for writing a thriller with Tim Robbins, I don't know who the other guy it is, but it's called Arlington Road, but Joan Cusack's in it, and she's great. Right. Which is an interesting choice, because Arlington Road, which I do like quite a bit, it's really dark, too. But it's not, like, I don't know how you would watch Arlington Road and be like, oh, yeah, this guy can do what Kevin Williamson did in Scream. Like, they're two very different movies. Right. Nevertheless, they hire Aaron Kruger to replace Williamson. And, Joe, do you have on hand the list of films that Kruger has written since Scream 3? I sure do. (laughs) I've kept it up all day because every once in
0: a while I just open it and kind of gently hiss at it. (laughs) So Arlington Road, then Scream 3, there's a movie in between, but who could care, Mm -hmm. followed by Reindeer Games, which is that Ben Affleck, Charlize Theron film, which is, it's got its own development issues, Imposter, which is a Gary Sinise uh, sci-fi film, and then The Ring. The Ring is the only legitimately good film on Aaron Kruger's filmography. And
2: I know you haven't seen Arlington Road, so I I would still recommend that, but I I agree with you. But again, are we going to say it's because it's a remake and he already had like the whole script basically ready for him?
0: Uh, Yeah, that's a tricky question. I mean, I would say that of all of the American J-horror remakes, The Ring is by far the best. So I'm willing to give him a little credit because we have seen some of those other ones really crash and burn.
2: I know I agree, but I mean like I don't think like the ring does make some updates like from the original. But mm-hmm. honestly, I feel like most of them are because of Verbinski. Like a lot of it's style mm-hmm. for me.
0: That is fair.
2: Yeah, there isn't a ton of like on the written page. There's not a ton that's different. But mm-hmm. you know, we talk about the the differences between the J horror remakes and like how there's like a cultural divide there. And I do think that at least Kruger adapts it for America, right? Really, really well compared yeah. to you know the Grudge, where it's like okay, we got to bring this white lady to Japan. Well, like Dark Water. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: So anyway. Okay, so he he also did The Ring 2. Woof. The Skeleton Key, which I actually kind of like, but people are going to quibble with whether or not that's actually good.
2: You know what, though? I've seen a lot of people really, really, like, push The Skeleton Key lately. I I do like it. That ending is a ballsy as fuck ending for a studio horror film.
0: Correct. Yeah, and that's actually one of the reasons why I like it. No, I agree. it's to take those risks. Mm -hmm. The Brothers Grimm... A bunch of Transformers movies, that Ghost in the Shell movie. So another, like,
2: Asian film adaptation. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then he did Dumbo, the Tim Burton one, and he's doing Top Gun Maverick, which is supposed to come
2: out later this year. I hate Top Gun so much. I think it's one of the most boring movies I've ever seen in my life, but that is not a popular opinion, so I will move on.
0: Eh, well, it's also Tom Cruise does big dick moves for, like, an hour and a half, but (sighs) gay as fuck, so. I hate it so much.
2: So, okay. To help in developing the script, Kruger did read copies of Williamson's scripts for Scream and Scream 2. And he, I love this too, he watched the earlier films to better understand the characters and tone, which that sentence to me implies that he had not seen (laughs) Scream 1 or 2. So you got the job and then you did your homework. Well done. Congratulations. Yeah, which is great. But apparently, um, in an interview like since production, Kruger admitted that his lack of involvement with the development of the principal cast of Scream hampered his ability to portray them true to their previous characterization. Right. Early scripts for Scream Three had Sidney Prescott being like, apparently like a very like Linda Hamilton and Terminator Two, which I'm just hmm. like, well, who wrote that? Because did they just quote Mickey from Scream Two <laughs> right? got a real Linda Hamilton vibe going on, don't you exactly, <laughs> but apparently when Craven would read this and he would intervene, and so he, cr- he would correct the script to bring the characters closer to their previous appearances. Uh.
0: See, this is what we're getting back to with Scream 2. Remember how we talked about, is it Williamson or is it Craven or is it both? And really, you can feel Craven's hand guiding so much of this franchise. And I think it's one of the reasons why it's been eh, consistently good throughout the four iterations.
2: No, absolutely. And so Kruger says, he's even said, like, even though Craven doesn't have a writing credit on this film, like, he played he a huge part in right. writing this film. And as we'll discuss in a minute, there wasn't always a script on hand ready to go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I shudder. I cannot think about
0: making a $40 million movie and being like, here are the pages for today. I just wrote them. Yep. Oh, actually, that's where we are now. So, (laughs) (laughs) I'm feeding you lines, kid.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Like Scream 2, the script for Scream 3 was subject to repeated alterations with pages sometimes completed only on the day on which they were to be filmed. That is what happens in the movie, too. So I'm just like, Kruger's just sitting there, like, really pissed off, like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm writing more pages. Let me write about this in the movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, particularly the Jenny McCarthy line, where she's actively talking about, has there been another goddamn yeah. right? Apparently, they were filming that, and members of the crew were being like, really? Like, pointing at them, being like, you
2: fuckers, really? (laughs) So yeah, multiple scenes were rewritten to include previously absent characters or change elements of the plot when it was decided they were not connecting with other scenes. Apparently in one of the original scripts, in actually in Williamson's original like 30-page draft thing, he had it to where the killer's... Would have been part of a stab fan club in Woodsboro, and all the members of the club would have been involved in the killings, and the final twist of the movie was when Sydney walks into a house after Ghostface had killed everyone, and they all rose up, none of them were really dead, they planned the whole thing, blah, 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 blah. That was eventually used in Kevin Williamson's TV show The Following with Kevin Bacon, which is a hot piece of garbage.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because you can also see a little bit of the genesis
2: of Scream 4 in there as well, right? You can, but also it, like, it seems like April Fool's Day, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, mm. th- that's immediately what comes to my mind when I see that. I'm like, okay, so Williamson just ripped off April Fool's Day.
0: Right, previous episode that a bunch of
2: you bitches didn't listen to, so go back and listen to it. I know, and it's a really good movie. Yeah. Anyway, but I- I've gone ahead too far because we're already in production. okay. Shortly before production, so production of this film begins in July 1999. In April 1999, that's when Columbine happens. So, mm-hmm. we've got most of a script written, and then this happens. The world is really, at least this country, is really torn asunder. Scream itself had already kind of been part of this whole, like, oh, it's inspiring killers, blah, 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 like violence in the media, video games right. are coming under scrutiny, horror itself was coming under scrutiny, it really was a lot. And mm-hmm. basically, people were looking for reasoning into the actions of Eric Harris and Dylan Klebel, the Columbine killers. And basically, with Scream 3 not yet underway, because they hadn't started filming yet, there were considerations about whether the film should be made at all. Well, I don't think the Weinsteins considered cancelling this film. <laughs> no, of course not. They said, <laughs> I'm sorry, money bucks in the vault there.
0: Yeah, we're going to go ahead with this movie.
2: Well, yeah. So, aware of the potential for negative attention, the studio, meaning the Weinsteins, decided to press forward, albeit with changes. hmm So, first of all, the setting of the film was changed from Woodsboro to Hollywood, upon which Kruger commented that he believed the characters should be moving to bigger places from high school to college to Hollywood anyway. Right. But behind the scenes, the move away from Woodsboro was mandated, as it was considered that a film containing violent acts of murder in and around the small town of Woodsboro and the Associated School would attract significant negative criticism and attention that could be detrimental to the production and studio, since the film would have been released less than a year after Columbine happened.
0: Yeah, and this was happening across Hollywood. So basically anything to do with teenagers, they were trying to remove any kind of violence a lot of people will remember the controversy even around the Matrix because there were these guns. accusations yeah, that it was just promoting gun violence, which is, I mean, frankly, hilarious to somebody who doesn't live in the U.S. because you folks love your guns.
2: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm even looking at like post 9-11 when any movie involving a plane was mm-hmm. like pulled. Like, yeah. The Gwyneth Paltrow, Mike Myers, Christina Applegate comedy view from the top was postponed over a year because of 9-11.
0: Yeah, yeah, but they gave back to, I think we've mentioned this before, but even like the Buffy episode Earshot and its season three finale, Graduation Part Two, were both delayed very long times.
2: I didn't watch Buffy when it aired except for the final season, but my husband always tells me, because we rewatched Graduation Day, the season three finale, and he was like, oh, it was a pain in the ass because they didn't air Earshot, and then they aired the Graduation Day Part One. (laughs) <laughs> but they didn't, they didn't air part two until after the summer because, yeah. of, because again, you know, Columbine's in April, Buffy's ending in May. So it's a month yeah. later. And so oh no,
0: it it was very soon. It's just one of those things where if you can watch an adult protagonist turn into a giant snake and then them blow up a school and equate that to teenage gun violence, mm-hmm. like you're really, you know what, you're reaching, you're reaching with that. <sighs> You know, it's it's sensitivity. I appreciate that. But this idea that we need to actually, you know what, let's not go into it because we've got so much other stuff. If people want to hear our thoughts, we do have a Patreon episode about censorship and scapegoating.
2: I'm of two minds. I I, I won't harp on it too much. But yeah, I mean, I get why these things happen. I don't really like this whole like changing media to like for sensitivity. whatever. Sorry. Mm -hmm. You're right. Too long. Okay. Also another change. In a 2009 interview, Matthew Lillard, who was Stu in Scream, Mm -hmm. he said he had been contracted to reprise his role in Scream 3 as the primary antagonist, having survived his apparent death, orchestrating new ghost face attacks from prison on high school students, and ultimately targeting Sydney, which, again, that's a lot of the following as well. 100%. Yeah. But again, they changed that because they didn't want to have a high school setting of teens committing murder.
0: Right. And also, so weird that they, at one point, considered bringing both Randy and Stu for this film. It's like, no, just let them be dead.
2: Yeah, I am 100% against Randy coming back, and we will talk about more of that when we get to his scene in this film. <laughs> Quote-unquote scene, yeah. I don't know if I mind Stu. I, if there was a line in two about it, right. like about him surviving I would and being in prison, I think I would be more forgiving, but because there's like, as of two, like they are dead. Right. Although really... They never really say Stu is dead, right? Like, we get yeah. the, I fucking killed him for Billy Loomis, but we don't get that for Stu. This is true.
0: Yeah, they could have just included an insert of Nancy O'Dell being like, And Stu Mocker from prison
2: said he thought the new stab movie was fantastic.
1: <laughs>
2: I love that. So yeah, those are some issues with that. But here's the other thing, too. So... Of course, with those changes, the, the, there was also issues with the violence in the film in general. The studio remained much more apprehensive concerning violence and gore in Scream 3 than with previous installments, pressing a greater emphasis on the series' satiric humor while scaling back on the violence. Right. Is this
0: where they started to have conversations about whether they should even show blood?
2: That is correct. So at one point in production, the studio went as far as to demand that the film feature no blood on screen. or Sorry, no blood or on-screen violence at all. Can you imagine? (laughs) Oh, well, Craven intervened, and he was like, y'all, we can make a Scream movie, or we can make not a Scream movie. But if you don't let me have violence in this movie, it will not be Scream. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also, to compare, Scream 3 does use the least amount of artificial blood in the first three films. It uses 10 gallons of blood compared with the 50 gallons for Scream 1 and the 30 gallons for Scream 2. Mm -hmm. Okay, now... There's another issue with this film. So, the studio had learned a lot from the script leaks that um, leaked all over the quote-unquote internet for Scream (laughs) 2. So, the production team purposefully on Scream 3 filmed large amounts of footage containing different variations of each scene based on the different script developments in order that, should the script further change, they would ideally have a scene they could use without having to film new ones at a later date. Oh my god, this is not how you make movies. This required them to obtain access to locations or build sets. And we'll get into this with Cotton seam, But they had to like, they had the apartment, but then they left and they had to go back and do reshoots and they couldn't get into the apartment again. So they had to build a set of the apartment to like, refilm this opening scene twice.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you've got that Blu-ray, you can go and see both of these alternate versions. And it's weird because they look almost identical. But at the same time, you're like, really, you cared this much about the aesthetic that you wouldn't just be like, meh, scrap it, just... Film a new opening.
2: I have thoughts about these openings, too, because I actually prefer either of the alternate ones to the one we get. Except for one particular thing.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll get to that opening. There's a lot to chat.
2: Yeah. So, the script underwent changes repeatedly as filming was conducted, with pages regularly only available on the day of filming. Additionally, if the production decided to change a scene, this sometimes meant refilming other scenes that had already been filmed to maintain continuity requiring further rewrites. (sighs) I
0: <sighs> just what 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 are you doing,
2: people? So much bullshit. Because again, you know, this is this is 1999. They're filming Scream Two in 1997. It's early internet. The script leaks are like a new thing. So they're like kind of working on the fly. Mm-hmm. You almost wish that they would have just done three right away before it had even evolved further. And I get it. You know, I get the fears because people were fucking apeshit shit about these films. Rightfully so. Yeah. What?
0: I just think it's so funny that what we end up with is a compromised film that maybe has a shocking reveal ending, but at the same time, like, you only get to experience that ending for the first time once, and then you have to rewatch this, frankly, hodgepodge, very messy film for eternity. It's like, folks, you're so short sighted on keeping the identity of the killer secret. Come on.
2: Okay. Brief aside, though, do you remember the most surprise you were ever at a killer reveal in these films? Uh, it was a 100% Miss Loomis. Okay. For me, it's either Miss Loomis or Jill Roberts. Like, I don't know which one gave me more of a, <gasps> I think had I seen two later and appreciated it, because I think when I saw two, I was very much like, oh, it's that lady. Mm-hmm. Or I was like, who's that lady? Because I, did, I didn't watch Roseanne at the time, so I didn't know to pay right. attention to Debbie Salt. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, whenever Jill Roberts, sorry, all spoilers for Scream 4, whenever Emma Roberts takes off that mask, I was just very much like, (gasps) for sure, for that character, not so much
0: for the uh, Rory Culkin character. No,
2: yeah, Rory Culkin was, yeah. But I think maybe that's why the Jill Roberts thing works for me, is because the Rory Culkin reveal is so much like a... Yeah, it's
0: very underwhelming. But uh, you know what, we'll talk about that next year.
2: For sure. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so... There also was another issue, too. So, Craven had stated that convincing the central cast to return to film Scream 2 wasn't that difficult. Like, Courtney Cox is the most famous here, but a lot of people are on TV, but it wasn't a huge deal. They can come back. Right. Unfortunately, their burgeoning fame and busy schedules made arranging their availability with Scream 3's production period very difficult. Right. The big one, though, is Nev Campbell. So, Nev Campbell's commitments in particular. She's filming Party of Five. Mm -hmm. She's filming Drowning Mona during the filming of Scream 3. And Joe, you were surprised by this too, but Nev Campbell is wearing a wig throughout the entirety of Scream 3.
0: Yeah, I'm a little embarrassed. Uh, When you know to look for it, you can very clearly see it. But I remember thinking at the time, oh yeah, the hair just looks a little shaggy in the back. But apparently that's to cover the Drowning Mona extensions.
2: The funny thing to me is that it would have made more sense for her to have her hair be her hair in Scream 3 and then give her a wig for Drowning Mona because her character in Drowning Mona, she's not white trash, but she's like in a town of white trash and it's these extensions with highlights and stuff like... You can give her a bad wig in drowning Mona. Right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the idea that
2: it took her two hours
0: a day to put on this random screen three know nothing wig, like I feel bad for this actress, even though she only had twenty days of production. Well
2: yeah, so that's the other thing. So because of all of her other commitments, she had twenty days, so three just under three weeks to film this movie. And the filming for this movie was July sixth through September twenty ninth. Not sure. Yeah, I mean, she basically was available for three of the eight weeks of filming, and mm-hmm. she is ostensibly the protagonist of this franchise, <laughs> right?
0: But not in this film. Not as in a this result. film,
2: <laughs> which is why, though, like when writing the script, they put more focus on Dewey and Gale, and Sydney's kind of like there, yeah, at her house. But mm-hmm. I will say she arrives at the police station like a lot sooner than I because re- it's like the fifty-minute mark. A lot sooner than I remembered her coming in.
0: I do remember her being more involved in the climax. Like when we get to the point where Milton's party begins, I was like, okay, well, Sydney's going to show up soon. And she doesn't like she's really absent for the entire first part of
2: the last act. But you'll also notice that even when she's in the police station, a lot of her scenes are her by herself. Mm -hmm. So that's the issue there, too. They had it for 20 days. Like, cool, let's film all your alone shit. Yeah, basically, we
0: built this police station, you're just gonna sit in this office and deliver a lot of lines and Patrick Dempsey will come
2: through with his like, beautiful hair. Mm -hmm. Actually, I'm sorry. And I I misspoke earlier, I said eight weeks, it is very much a 12 week shooting schedule. So she was filming for a fourth of this film's shooting schedule. There we go. Yeah. So yeah, they greenlight this movie with a budget of $40 million, a significant increase over the $15 million budget of Scream and the $24 million budget of Scream 2. I would also like to point out that the $40 million budget of Scream 3 matches the $40 million budget of Scream 4, but because of inflation, 11 years later, technically, Scream 3 is the most expensive film in this franchise. You're so persnickety about that. I love it. It makes me so mad, and I'll talk about it more whenever we cover Scream 4, but it, I hate it. Mm-hmm. So... Yes, Scream 3 opens February 4th, 2000, and it opens in the number one spot with $34.7 million, and it stayed in the number one spot in its second week as well. Which is super fucking rare for a horror film. Well, the marketing for this was very much like, oh, it's a trilogy, it's the final chapter of a trilogy, everything's gonna come to a head, and one thing I actually do really like, if you haven't seen the trailer for this movie, it's very much a teaser trailer, where... It's like, chapter one sets the rules, we're watching, like, clips of Scream 1, chapter two bends the rules, and we're watching clips of Scream 2, and then it's like, but in the finale... It's like, all bets are off or something? Something like that, I don't fucking know. (laughs) But it's, again, a lot of clips. You don't even know the plot of this movie based on the trailer. Mm -hmm. Which I, I really honestly appreciate... It does make me think that they released that trailer before they knew what the movie was. <laughs> we haven't even shot anything for this movie, but we know that it's coming to theaters on
0: this day.
2: It goes on to make $89.1 million domestically and $72.7 million internationally for a worldwide total of $161.8 million. It is about $13 million below what Scream 1 and 2 made domestically and about $10 million below what they made internationally. So it's a downturn, but like for... The reputation that Scream 3 has, it's honestly not as bad as you would expect.
0: No, it's not the failure that people like to assign. But when the box office numbers failed to hit 100 million, that was like, okay, we will not talk about a fourth entry. This is now a trilogy for sure. We're not going to think about doing
2: future iterations. I mean, maybe if they would have spent $40 million in 2000 money on it, which because $40 million in 2000 money is about uh, $60 million today.
0: Yeah. It's a lot of money. But I mean, they also had to pay these stars a lot more because you can't give them the paltry pennies that they were giving for Scream 1. Like, they knew what they were worth at this point.
2: So, you know, Nev Campbell and Jamie Lee Curtis had that variety, like, web chat last year. And Nev Campbell had said, like, oh, she had her, you know, her fee for Scream mm-hmm. 1 and 2. And it wasn't until Scream 3 that she was able to get, like, a cut of something else. Right, which is where the money is. Yes, but she very much alluded to the fact that the Weinstein's fucked her out of that too. I'm shocked, <laughs> but this is the first time she was able to say like, "Oh, hey, give me a cut." I'm literally the head of your franchise, and yeah. it makes sense. Yeah, the reception for this film was not great, even at the time. Like, this isn't one where, say, like it came out, and people were like, "Oh, it's good," and now we hate it. No, 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 no. The first two movies were critically acclaimed movies. The second one <clears throat> has the best reviews of the franchise. <laughs> We're looking at a 39% on Rotten Tomatoes for this, with a 5.2 out of 10 average score and a Letterboxd score of 5.4 out of 10. Yeah, I mean, what else can you say?
0: It's halfway there.
2: Honestly, yeah, I think I gave this a three out of five because I felt like I was—I wanted to be generous, but I, this really probably is a two and a half for me. Yeah, it toggles between two and a half and three for me. Yeah, and like we're both massive fans of this franchise, and it just—it just is what it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you want to walk through it?
2: Yeah, let's let's go there. We spent 45 minutes on on <laughs> this troubled production. <laughs>
0: uh, well, the films under the Weinsteins often require lengthier production sections, as we've
2: discovered. See our episode on Cursed, Scream 2, mm-hmm. probably some others. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we should do Mimic one day. Ooh. I haven't seen that in ages, so I'd be I to, uh... really like Mimic. <laughs> I like Mira Sorvino. I like Del Toro. Yeah, there you go. Josh Brolin. Um, yeah, sure. He's barely, he he dies really fast. But okay. Cool. Cool. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, so, Scream 3. Obviously, people who know Scream know that the opening kill is a big thing, right? So, there was a lot of speculation about who they were going to murder. And I remember going into the theater, there was a lot of concern and hand-wringing that
2: they were going to kill one of the
0: original three in this opening.
2: And the funny thing is that they never were. Like that was never it was never in on the consideration. Table. No. I do have and you may have this too, but the original opening was gonna be a character named Ben Damon, who was an actor in Stab Two, Whoa. who is now going to be the lead in Stab Three. Oh my god, that name. <laughs> Just warning signs right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, no, no, no. I'm sorry. You mentioned like how Hollywood satire movies like don't really do that well. I think the most successful one that I've ever seen is actually Jay and Silent Bob strike back. But rewatching it last year, it does not hold up nearly as well as it did in 2000 for me. <laughs> right. I think most
0: people would probably look at Robert Altman's The Player as the kind of go to, but even that is a satire as opposed to like a straight up comedy. Yeah. It's also clearly meant for like adults. So this idea that you're going to make a slasher film set in Hollywood with beautiful. 20 something people it's like it's a departure from what they would normally do
2: that's the thing this film teeters it's trying to be satirical it borders on parody for me yeah everything is so on the nose and thus not quite funny (laughs) like you mentioned the jay and
0: silent bob cameo i groan i groaned in the theater in 2000
2: um you know i know people always hate that i I don't like it i don't quite find it as terrible as everyone else does but it's very much like a why is this in my scream movie exactly
0: yeah and it's because it's like oh well who are our recognizable people that this demographic will go oh hey i know those dudes
2: actually it was
0: filming at the same time wasn't
2: it <laughs> well i was trying to see so like you know this comes out february of 2000 jane silent bob comes out in august of 01 I wonder if they were like, hey, y'all, we're making this Jay and Silent Bob movie, so let's put them in Scream 3, which we know is going to make a lot of money to boost awareness of their brand. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) I
0: mean, we have heard Stranger Things, so that would not surprise at all. 100%. (laughs) Okay. So, in fact, obviously, as we all know, the actual opening kill is Cotton weary.
2: Weakest of the franchise, right?
0: Absolutely. It honestly feels like they didn't really even try with this one and i don't mean like oh they found it in like it's not very good it's just that it doesn't seem like they were trying to top one or two with this they just thought okay we'll kill someone recognizable so they thought okay well cotton is expendable
2: yeah i think that's a thing right so okay like all of these films the first one you have drew barrymore and it's fucking terrifying the second one you have this kind of meta movie theater experience the fourth mm-hmm. one you have like the movie within a movie within a movie which is really fun
0: Yeah, that one feels like they're actually overcompensating. Like, we know three sucked. We're going to really go all out with
2: this one. (laughs) 100%. Because if you actually like, I love the opening of Scream 4, but when you watch it, it's kind of like, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. No. But this one is honestly kind of, the only thing I like about this scene is the very end when when the killer goes, it was only a simple game, Cotton, now you lose, and we get the knife down, cue title card. (laughs) My God, it sounds like a jigsaw line when you say it, though. It does. And also, Roger Jackson's voice doesn't sound the same in that line. It sounds like a bad dub. Right. That being said, there are two alternate cuts of this scene, and I Mm -hmm. actually, pre-Cotton's death, I prefer all of it to what we actually got. They're actually in
0: reverse order when you watch them on the Blu-ray, but the first one that they shot is basically him running into the original West Hollywood location that they shot. So it's not a set, it's actually an apartment building. He has to unlock the door, he goes in, it's him by himself the entire time. He's looking for his girlfriend Christine, who in the final cut will be played by Kelly Rutherford.
2: Who at the time was known for Melrose Place, but Mm -hmm. most people may know her now for being, oh god, is it Serena's mom in Gossip Girl? Correct. Yeah, Serena's and Gossip bro <laughs> Yeah, but in this original cut,
0: no Kelly Rutherford at all. It's actually just Cotton. He's looking through the house. He's finding open doors and the shower's on. But he's actually talking to his girlfriend like she's planning to meet him down the street. Yeah. And then eventually that gets revealed. He's directed to open a closet door and Christine's body falls out. She's already dead. He's been talking to the killer the whole time. And then Ghostface
2: just comes in and kills him. So I think the broom closet reveal is really fun. Yeah, well, we do know the voice changers were because again, like in the same scene, actually, wait, oh, mm-hmm. in this one, does he talk to the killer on the phone posing as a sexy woman? Presumably, yes, because in all of these iterations, he's driving,
0: he gets a call from a woman, and then it's revealed that it's Ghostface and Ghostface is trying to get at his girlfriend in their apartment.
2: Got it. Yeah,
0: I think the issue that they had with this was that you didn't care about the dead girlfriend and that it was just too much Cotton Weary. So when they reshoot the second version of it, you actually get Kelly Rutherford in this. They didn't have that West Hollywood location, so they actually had to rebuild. So they're cutting back and forth between some of the original stuff and some of the new stuff. And in this new version, the confrontation happens in this office space, but it has a skylight. And at one point, the killer gets trapped under a bookcase, and Cotton, for no good reason, climbs up through the skylight, and then he gets stabbed, he falls back down, and then he dies.
2: Okay, but I, I actually really like this, too, because he's basically like dangling off this skylight, and the killer stabs him in the leg, and mm-hmm. pull, it it uses really the knife to pull him down. Like, I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. What ruins both of these scenes for me is... <laughs> basically like <laughs> he's he's about to get stabbed and the killer's like says something it's not the same line right and cotton goes but i'm in the sequel and the killer yeah. goes aren't we all and then stabs him it is the stupidest thing
0: <laughs> yeah there's definitely a couple of clunkers in the finished script but this one in particular would have been the opening kill ending with a thud
2: Okay, right, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Why does the killer think that Cotton would know where Sydney is? Uh, just a relationship with Sydney. I guess at this point we're
0: meant to assume anyone who has ties to Sydney could potentially be victim.
2: And so he's just gonna kill everyone. So he starts yeah. with Cotton.
0: <laughs> I mean, start at the bottom, right? I guess. Or maybe it's just that Cotton was the easiest to get to because he's already in Los Angeles. Nope. Even as I'm saying that, it doesn't make sense because Dewey's also there. Yeah.
2: 3 is in production. Well, and we already know that the killer has gone through the ransacked the file cabinet. Also, it's Roman. So he must know that Dewey is working on the film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, as soon as you start to poke holes in the narrative logic of this movie, everything really starts to fall apart.
2: I will say, though, that this film does share something in common with Two. You know, Two drops the copycat, like, storyline, like, really quickly. Mm-hmm. This film drops the, oh, the killer is killing people in the order they die in the script very quickly, like, as soon as it's mentioned.
0: <laughs> yeah, Absolutely which i find a little bit more palatable in this film than i did in the second one because i think i was interested in that in the second one whereas here you're like oh there's a million different scripts and yeah. it could be anybody so you're like all right that's fine
2: but the problem is again just like in scream 2 which is a flaw that i will admit as soon as patrick dimsey says we don't know which one the killer read there is no mention of this ever again. ever again no yeah. it's like
0: it just i guess we're all potential victims okay let's live our lives in fear
2: yeah Absolutely.
0: So there are two things that I want to shout out about this. One is that this opening sequence, I don't love it. I actually do think it's just kind of a meh opening. But it does have a lot of earmarks back to the original film. And that's one of the things where I don't know that Aaron Kruger did a great job with this script. But he does try to make a bunch of callbacks to one so that it feels like this final entry in the trilogy is speaking back to its origin.
2: Interesting. I've actually never noticed callbacks to one in this scene. So do you have oh, a couple? Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So for me,
0: part of it is this idea that we've got this blonde woman getting into the shower in the opening scene.
2: But see, okay, that, that to me is calling out the Heather Graham replica in Scream 2.
0: Well, yeah, it's not just one that's doing okay. it. Like there's a couple of different instances. But like whenever Kelly Rutherford gets out of the shower, I immediately go to Jada's line. Why she got to be
2: butt ass naked? I mean, a lot of the critiques of 3 are like, this movie has become what the first two films were satirizing. Right. Yeah, it's a joke on itself. I find it funny that they decide to replicate the satirical scene in mm-hmm. Scream 2 that right. is satirizing the, I mean, not in the film, but like Ken Williamson, satirizing Drew Barrymore scene in Scream 1. Like, I think mm-hmm. it's such a weird choice, Right. I don't disagree, but I do feel like they don't think
0: that they're making that joke. I think they're paying homage to the roots. They are wrong. Everything with Cotton's phone conversation pre you know Hollywood Chase scene, right. which I also don't love, is very Drew Barrymore getting quizzed by Ghostface in the first film.
2: Yeah. I just wish I do like Cotton, I like Leah Schreiber. I just <sighs> I honestly, like, don't like Kelly Rutherford in this movie. I don't need her walking around like, <laughs> Oh, no. I mean,
0: she's a nothing character. I feel like we wouldn't even talk about her if she hadn't gone on to be something bigger in other things.
2: No, I, I remember, though, my, when I watched this on VHS in 2003, my dad was like, oh, Trace, it's Kelly Rutherford from Melrose Place, as if I should know who that is. <laughs> right. If you watch Melrose, you would recognize her. Yeah. Although, even on that, I would argue she wasn't, like,
0: a great character.
2: Courtney Thorne-Smith and Marshall Cross, man. Right. Yeah. So the other
0: big thing that I like about this, and it's a brief aside, and then we can move on. Mm -hmm. I love the line where she says, you know, I don't like your stab games, because I think that that cues us that they have a role play sex life. And I just love imagining Cotton. Being like, ooh, I'm the scary killer who killed Maureen Prescott. I'm sneaking into your house to
2: take off your panties. I also, again, Roman is a movie director... Oh, I guess maybe that's why he went after Cotton, right? Like, Roman is in Hollywood. He knows Cotton. He's going Mm -hmm. for it. Well, don't forget, Cotton's also working on the movie. Because he's in Stat 3. Right. Oh, yeah. But I'm in the sequel! (laughs)
0: That's so bad.
2: You lose! But there is that line though where um, he's like, "I'm talking about how much fun it's going to be to rip your insides out." Like that, that does seem like a callback to one. So that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. So that's our opening, and then we get our title card,
0: and we open with Sid, and she is living like the fucking Unabomber in seclusion
2: with her dog Cherokee. I will say, I do really like a lot of Sydney stuff. I, I think I think the Sydney stuff really raises this movie a bit. Well, it's the emotional core of the film, right? It is. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people that, like, don't even like Scream 3 that are like, I wish Scream 4 didn't exist because Scream 3 has the perfect ending for the franchise. For her. Yeah. For her. Yes. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But I I understand that sentiment. I, I do understand that sentiment.
0: Yeah. One of the issues that you could make with this film is that it doesn't have enough Sydney, And as a result, it doesn't have enough of that kind of hurt or almost like a grounding figure like as much as we like gail and dewey they've never been the linchpin around which everything circles and it i think makes the ending harder to land because you're supposed to suddenly be like oh my god there's this other person who was meant to be a part of sydney's story but also sydney hasn't been here for
2: very much of the film and also she's (laughs) never met this character before (laughs) i will say and i mean this is the one thing i'll say about screen vibe everyone prepare yourselves for maybe reduced roles for our central trio not because they're going to die but because i don't think they're going to be the focus of this film it's entirely
0: possible but
2: by design whereas with this it's like Nev campbell's not available right yeah <laughs> sorry neve campbell's not available right now
0: she's not taking your calls yeah exactly <laughs> But speaking of, so she she is working remotely at a crisis counseling organization. I know that Jen Adams from Psychoanalysis Pod they did an entire episode about Sydney's art throughout the three films and what it means. I mean, I think that this film, particularly Scream Three, is very much centered around. The historical legacy of trauma and like what it does to generations Mm -hmm. and there's something nice about sydney's journey towards finding acceptance and a kind of peace in this film but i like the idea that she's also helping other women when we meet her.
2: It's interesting too, right? Because if we talked about Halloween 2018 and how it handles trauma a lot because of what it does to the Laurie Strode character. And there are some people, both of us included who were like, Oh, Halloween H2O actually like handles her trauma better. Y'all should yeah. listen to our uh audio commentary on Halloween H2O. If you're a patron, there we go. But this film actually scream three and two for that matter. Mm-hmm. And four now mm-hmm. should be looked at similarly. Again, like I've already said, this film handles Sid's arc really really well and i really like it yeah yeah and i i don't disagree
0: with the people who think this is a a perfect three i almost said episode this is a, <laughs> a perfect three film arc for this character
2: yeah for sure
0: okay so that's our introduction to sid she's doing okay but obviously she's very much out off the grid people don't know who she is she's going under an assumed name of laura and so on so let's touch base with gail gail is delivering I think it's just because we just watched Copycat, but I was like, is Gail doing the Sigourney Weaver bit from I Copycat? I thought the
2: same fucking. <laughs> oh my God, Joe.
0: <laughs> it, like, she's delivering a, a talk about serial killers to a packed auditorium at UCLA. I was like, Beijing Dr. Weaver. All we needed to do is put her in a red fucking dress. No,
2: this is Helen Hudson, hardcore. Yeah. But like, way cuntier. I'm sorry, way bitchier. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny but it, it, it gets so on the nose and this guy's like so you're saying we should go out and like slit each other's throats metaphorically yeah okay <laughs> I just like I mean again I love Gill Weathers I love this it's just kind of like ugh okay well part of this too is well I do think that this
0: film does a very good job with Sydney. I don't love what it's done to Gail she's not the brittle kind of hard woman that she was in 2 where she was all exterior and you know kind of soft on the inside mm-hmm. here it really does feel like she's that kind of cutthroat bitch and part of this is that you hear she had this great opportunity on 60
2: Minutes too, which this film thinks that that's a hilarious joke it's not, yeah, it's not. but I think again we leave Screen 2 ends with Gale giving up a report to go check on Dewey. hmm Yeah. And I do buy this trajectory for the character, but... I do, too. It's all given via, like, exposition with dialogue, and I'm just like... It, granted, it is the same thing with 2, with how 1 ends, but we end 1 with Gale giving the report <laughs> and mm-hmm. not going to see Dewey. We end 2 with Gale giving up a report to go see Dewey, and so... I don't know it's it's frustrating to me
0: (laughs) yeah i don't love it but i do think that this film gets there in the end and much like what we talked about with sydney this film does find a kind of peace and closure for gail and dewey and the relationship that i quite like and i will say if i have a complaint about four particularly with gail and dewey it's that they really just replicate this scream three storyline again
2: yeah that's fair it also should be pointed out this is the one screen film where courtney cox is credited as courtney cox arquette hmm. they had just come back from their honeymoon like a week before production started
0: yeah it is funny in that audio commentary for Wes Craven to continually talk about which scenes were shot first and he's like well you can just tell because they just got back from the bahamas they're so tanned <laughs> 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 Okay, so yeah, so Gail does this talk, and then she is introduced to Detective Peter Kincaid, who is played by Patrick Dempsey. He is waiting to tell her about Cotton's death, and also they have found their first piece of evidence, which is an old picture of Maureen Prescott,
2: who is played by Lynn McCree, and she actually gets to do stuff in this movie. And the headshots that the killer leaves behind are her actual headshots from being in Hollywood, apparently. That is crazy. <laughs> I do think it's telling that the one Scream film to really actively incorporate cops. I know we get Hicks and whatever the fuck in Scream 4. <laughs> and we get the FBI agents in Scream 2. And I guess Dewey, you could say, is a cop in Scream 1. Kind uh, of. Kind of, yeah. I mean, he's a proper character, not
0: just a cop.
2: But, like, stereotypical cops, right? Like, the right. one Scream film to have stereotypical cops is, like, the worst one. I hate Patrick Dempsey's character in this movie. And they also make him a pseudo-Randy, where he's also really into scary movies. It's real dumb.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, that's because he and the Angelica character are the most obvious red herrings that this movie has.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: neither one of them work for
2: me. (laughs) No. I mean, if we had gotten the actual, originally intended ending, maybe Angelina would work, and we'll talk about that later. Right, yes. Oh, I called her Angelica, didn't I? Yeah,
0: it's Angelina.
2: Angelina... And Jennifer Jolie. <laughs> oh, I get it. And I don't like it. I mean, oh my God. Which, can you imagine
0: then that original draft instead of Cotton to have Ben Damon? And then this character
2: with Angelina Jolie. But see, that, oh. that is bad writing. That is bad meta. I'm glad that changed. It is stupid.
0: Yeah, like this is what high school me in my screenplay wrote was like, oh, I'm going to be super coy by just taking famous people's names and
2: taking like one from the front and one from the back. I'm surprised they didn't just call Jenny McCarthy's character like Angelina Aniston. Right. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> Do you get it? You get it, guys. You get it. <laughs> uh, okay, so
0: Sydney briefly finds out that Cotton's been murdered, courtesy of Nancy O'Dell, Ugh. and uh, and then <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That sound, you just, ugh.
0: It's just one of those things where it's like, whenever Nancy O'Dell shows up, you're like, oh, God. Like, she works in two because it's cheeky and you've got that Tory spelling payoff, whereas here you're just like, oh, it's just Nancy O'Dell pretending to be a
2: real reporter. But isn't advance. she also in four when she's like, Jill Roberts is a hero to our age. God, maybe. It, it's been a long time since I've seen four. Yeah. Oh, Oh, God, I'm so excited to revisit it with you. but yeah no no Nancy O'Dell is like one of the reporters of the end of four so she's in two three and four but I love scary movies (laughs) see that works
0: uh, (laughs) too my heart uh okay so we've got a terrible cover of Red Right Hand as we arrive at Sunrise Studios for production on Stab 3 Return to Woodsboro it's a cover it's definitely not the one that we've heard before oh
2: fuck I didn't my ears did not pick that up it's not good
0: Oof. okay It's not like the good original version, for sure. Gotcha.
2: Well, actually, because a big complaint with four was that it doesn't have red right hand. One has it when the town is being shut down for curfew. Mm -hmm. Three has it here. Two has it in the, like, the stab movie. Right. Okay, cool.
0: So this is where we just get the character dump, where we basically meet everybody that we're going to spend the rest of the movie with. So we are introduced on the stab three set to director Roman Bridger, played by Scott Foley. Studio head John Milton, who is played by Lance Hedrickson. There's also a cameo by Roger Corman. Oh. Yeah, he's the other guy when they're talking on the porch. Gotcha. And then we meet the cast of Stab 3. So we've got Angelina, who is played by Emily Mortimer. And after having covered Relic last year for Patreon, it was shocking to be like, holy shit, Emily Mortimer, 20 years ago,
2: she looks like a baby. <laughs> she is not the showcase in this movie, but have you seen Matchpoint, the Woody Allen movie with uh, Scarlett Johansson and I think it's Jonathan Reese Myers? Yes, you talked about it extensively on our relic episode. There you go. Yeah. She's really good in that. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's free con- that's then. free Patreon content for y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I really like Match Point. Emily Mortimer, real good at Match Point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, we also meet Tyson, played by Dion Richmond. Tom, played by Matt Kiesler, and Sarah Darling, played by Jenny McCarthy.
2: Okay, I know we hate Jenny McCarthy because she's anti-vaxxer, and that is rightfully so. Yes,
0: we hate Jenny McCarthy as a person, as an actress in this film, I love
2: her. I do too. And honestly, apparently she was like real great to work with. I did make it that far in the commentary where Craven was just like, she was awesome. Like she was super professional, always on time, which I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I love
0: that he, he praises her because she like showed up at work on time and apparently knew her lines. And part of me was like, Okay, I get that first part, but knowing her lines, you can't come down on actors for not knowing their lines when you're delivering them pages of new scripts every day, Wes Craven.
2: Honestly, like, I mean, it sucks, right? Because if you're watching a typical quote-unquote slasher movie, you expect Jenna McCarthy to die first, and that they do that anyway is really mm. fucking stupid to me.
0: Yeah, although I will say that her sequence is one of my favorite
2: in this film. I agree, except for the anticlimactic end of her. Correct. Yes. Yeah, we'll go there.
0: Uh, so, this is where we get Gail arriving on set. She is in a lemon colored suit this time. <laughs> Looks pretty good on her. It's I very gotta say. yellow. <laughs> it's very yellow. And uh, she is immediately ambushed by her stabbed doppelganger, Jennifer Jolie, played by MVP of this movie, Parker Posey.
2: It's. 100 percent the missed opportunity with this movie is that we don't get enough like dewey tom stuff and angelina sydney stuff absolutely not go to the corner what are you talking about that is the missed opportunity no no, no i mean i'm sorry there are many others the issue is that honestly emily mortimer is not very charismatic in this movie and tom matt keesler is not charismatic either so like there's okay. nothing there for like David oh Arquette you mean and like F. we're Caleb introduced to to...
0: off of okay
2: yeah that's what i mean like not not as they are they should okay. have had something that was again more satirical not going into parody honestly the parker posey stuff borders on parody but because mm-hmm. parker posey is so good and so charming she's a reprehensible person in this movie oh sure but you can't help but love her right oh, like it's yeah. that she makes this character work and her scenes with gale which oh are God. too few
0: that's is why I got angry
2: at you. I was like, uh, I don't want more scenes with those other people. No, I no, want no, no, more no, no, scenes no. with these two. It makes sense now. I meant that. to say, like, yeah, the script should have done more with the doppelganger aspect, right. but we just quote unquote get Gale and Jennifer Jolie, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. But right. imagine if we had that dynamic with all three of these.
0: Yeah, I wonder if they worried that it would just be too much trying to keep these people matched up with their doppelgangers. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's undeniable that Parker Posey is. I mean, she's almost in a league of her own in this film. We've praised, rightfully so, Courtney Cox for what she does with Gail, but she's never delivered this kind of manic, bouncing-off-the-walls, wacky, physical performance. Like Parker Posey comes into this movie, and she just gives it a complete lift. Like The movie is okay up to this point, and then Parker Posey comes in, and you're like, holy shit, this movie just got good.
2: You feel the energy. Yes, there is a bit near the end when whenever Angelina is getting murdered and Courtney Cox decides to run back and Parker Posey like runs after her, mm-hmm. but she like extends her arm out. <laughs> oh my god,
0: the women running in this movie is quite <laughs> odd because it's also so the the way that Angelina runs is very bizarre as well. Oh,
2: it's very much like Cindy Campbell in yes. Scary Movie Two. I'm not crazy. Whoa!
0: Listeners, I would like you to clock how many times Trace has done that over the last three years. But it's so true here. (laughs) It is very true here. I thought of you. I thought of you. This is what you have done to me now, Trace. I watch movies, and I think of you. We just need to
2: cover a scary movie, too.
0: Well, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, so we get the, these great, you know, back and forth. We learn that yes, Dewey, aka David Arquette, is a technical advisor on the film. There's a little combativeness, and then Gail gets kicked off. This is where we get our Jay and Silent Bob. I don't like the Connie Chung joke. It smacks of weird,
2: awkward racism
0: from the time.
2: I agree. Oh, it's because of her hair, right? Oh, I thought it was just like a reporter for reporter. Um, again, more on. The, okay, we have the name Jennifer Jolie. I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. things didn't work out with Brad Pitt. But being single, that's a pretty good fallback. Like, why? Why are you calling this out? We already have the name. We don't need this. Yeah, do not
0: call attention to this. This is not one of the strong suits of this script.
2: Yeah, it's bad. (laughs) But yes, Connie Chang is a weird joke. Yeah, weird joke.
0: Okay, so we hop back to Sydney. This is, again, just a little bit of character detail to know that she's still plagued by dreams about her dead mom, that her dad is apparently alive and well. We've not touched base with him at all in Scream 2, but, Mm -hmm. you know, Lawrence Heck, who apparently is like a a small-time character actor in L.A., it was nice to see him, I guess.
2: I've never noticed this detail until the commentary pointed it out, but there is a poster for her Fall of Troy or whatever Cassandra of Troy play.
0: Oh really?
2: Yeah. So when she walks in in her first scene after the opening, mm-hmm. um, she walks in and there's a picture of her and her dad, which is actually Nev Campbell, and her real father, like when she's a kid. Aww. But above it is a is a college poster for the play that she was in in Scream Two.
0: Ah, that's nice. Yeah, I thought that
2: was a really cool touch.
0: I will confess that it wasn't until prepping for this episode that I realized that she's wearing Derek's fraternity. <gasps> the necklace. necklace. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Never noticed it
2: before. See, so, yeah, no, I, I, and those are things, that, those are callbacks that I'm like, hey, if you're a fan of this franchise, you're going to see that. Yeah. It's nice. It's a nice touch. But then if, if 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 you have Dewey like, oh, you're still wearing Derek's necklace, your boyfriend that died and like, he, right. he, he gave you his, <laughs> his necklace. Like that clunkiness is what Screen 3 is to me. Sadly, there is a lot of parts like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thankfully, though, we have arrived at a part that tries for humor and succeeds. So this is the Sarah Darling at the studio. Mm-hmm. This is kind of funny because it's what they were afraid of giving Leah Shriver to do. This is really all Jenny McCarthy acting against herself because it's just her on the phone with
2: quote-unquote Roman. Yeah, no, I, I think it's just really fun. And okay, this is when the the, the the putting the film in Hollywood works because once... Because this movie isn't very mean, right? You don't get a lot of really harsh digs from the killer. No. The Sarah gets skewered like a fucking pig is great. It feels out of place in this movie, but it feels like it belongs in a scream film.
0: Huh. That's not where I thought you were going to go with that. I thought you were going to talk about the cracks about her age and the nudity. No,
2: no, no. no. All that, too. The, the one joke that doesn't work for me, though, is that the whole shower thing's been done. Hello, vertigo yeah that's not a good line for me (laughs) again they think it's clever
0: because she's so on the nose with all of these cultural references but then she gets the most obvious
2: hitchcock film incorrect and you're like oh come on but yeah then we do get the whole like has there been another goddamn rewrite how the fuck Mm -hmm. are we supposed to learn a line it's all really fun but then we get this pseudo chase scene where she's stuck in a props room
0: Yeah, it's so disappointing, because this really feels like it should be the first set piece, right? This is the CC of screen three, Mm -hmm. and yet it's over before it even begins.
2: Yeah, like, I mean, I I love this concept, like her Mm -hmm. using all the fake weapons, like, I think it's really cool, and then it's just, he punches her through the window, and stabs her in the back, and she is immediately dead, which, by the way, would not happen. Right. Right. But this is where you feel that Columbine pull coming in, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, we can't make it too violent. So we're going to make the set piece goofy, which it is, but it works for me. Sure. But then her ultimate demise is just like, oh. It's so fast. That's it. Like, that's it.
0: Okay. I will also say, folks, if you're playing the Scream 3 drinking game, drink every time someone gets stabbed in the back in this movie. Oh, my God. And I know that Dewey has been stabbed in the back before. Like, it is kind of a hallmark of the franchise, but in this film, it honestly feels egregious. It feels like everyone is getting stabbed in the fucking back in this movie.
2: Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Well, we haven't gotten to Stone yet, so we're getting there.
0: Right? Okay, so Sarah Darling is dead. And then we catch up with Gail and Dewey. They have a chat about Diane Sawyer and how she tried to make it work. I was like, mm, you're just reminding me of Drop Dead Gorgeous right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do like that Gail describes Jennifer Jolie as a second-rate Kmart direct-to-video knockoff. <laughs> See, that's quippy, and I like it.
2: Yeah, then we get this whole, like, a woman called the studio when she's the file on Sid... For research. A month later, the room is ransacked, but I already removed it. Mm-hmm, My question mm-hmm. was, I get that we have a file on Sid for, like, I guess, character work. Yeah. Why does the studio's file on Sidney Prescott include her location?
0: Absolutely not. mm <laughs> Is it keeping track of every person who ever survived any of the attacks so that, like, what the actors can call them up and be like, i really just love to talk to you about your character motivation when you were trying to survive?
2: Yeah. Uh, it's ugh. it's very, very unusual. Yeah. Kevin Williamson would never. <laughs> Hashtag Kevin Williamson would never. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, our subtitle for the episode.
0: Uh so we go to Jennifer Jolie's house. This is where they realize that the murders are happening in the order of the script, but of course they don't know which script, because there's been a bunch of them. We're also introduced here to bodyguard Steven Stone, Patrick Warburton, who uh, we talked about just a couple weeks ago And Better Watch Out. Yeah, and he's fine in this, if completely unnecessary. Yeah, I'm surprised that they resisted the urge to just dress him in red. Red shirt. No? Okay. I don't get it. Uh, it's a joke on Star Trek that all the people who wear the red shirts are the people who are just gonna die in the old oh wheel. You're so
2: cute. I have never seen an episode of Star Trek. Oh my <laughs> God. I love
0: that you don't know one of the longest running, most important culturally significant. I've franchises seen all in the history. movies that
2: um <laughs> abrams did i've seen those three And you know that joke because there's red shirts in those but I don't. who says that <laughs> oh my
0: god okay i've never heard that in my life cool i'm just gonna spam your twitter feed so folks feel free to yeah, let trace it. know where the references to red shirts come i have from.
2: never heard that before <laughs> oh
0: my I can't wait for you to just be like,
2: you're just going to be splooged in red shirt references. No, now. I, I, I'm sure it's popular because I know that people love Star Trek. But I, that that you think that I have seen an episode of Star Trek is hilarious to me. Oh no, it it transcends Star Trek. That's oh, okay. surprise! Gotcha.
0: Okay, so enter your favorite character, Trace. We've Kincaid. got Kincaid, and then we've got his partner Wallace, who is played by Josh Pay, Payus Pay. Us? Pay?
2: I don't know, I but he got cast because he was in music of the heart. Oh my god, could not care. <laughs>
0: at least Patrick Dempsey is a very pleasing to look at. Like, honestly, I want to fall asleep in that hair.
2: There is nothing about this Wallace character that I want nor need in this film. I have never found Patrick Dempsey attractive. I don't know why, even though all the Grey's Anatomy stuff, like people are like, Oh my god, Big Dreamy and I'm like, I don't he has a witch nose and a witch chin, and I don't care about his hair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. I hadn't thought about the witch
0: notes before, admittedly,
2: but, but we do get um again more fucking like Krueger trying to emulate Williamson, where mm-hmm. they're talking about Sarah's body and he goes, very hand of elector, very seven. I'm like, what are you no, doing, movie?
0: <laughs> absolutely not to both of those references also. Like, unless you're going to tell us that she was decapitated and yes! eaten, your references suck balls. It's so stupid. Yeah, Ugh. it doesn't work. No. Though because Sarah Darling was there to meet with Roman, this is where they zero in on him, and the movie is now shut down.
2: Mm-hmm. But Jennifer Jolie can always go back to must-see TV, and we get this gifable moment. <laughs> Where she's like,
0: (gasps) (laughs) I mean, everything Parker Posey does is a dream. It's so good. It's so good. The problem with a lot of this stuff is just like the film thinks that we're spending time with these cast members from Stab 3, and I'm still just like, I can't even tell you half of their names at this point.
2: No. I mean, oh, maybe Tom Prince is a Freddie Prince Jr. reference. I don't know what Sarah Darling
0: is. I feel like that one's obvious and we should know it, but I can't identify it either.
2: Okay. We obviously know Angelina Tyler is Angelina Jolie mm-hmm. and Jennifer Jolie is Jennifer Aniston and Angelina Jolie.
0: I feel like Dion is a white person looking up a like, okay, what are some traditional black names that I could reference? Well,
2: and he kind of fills the role of Joel from Scream 2, right? Mm-hmm. As like the black character characters pointing out the black tropes in horror movies, but yep. they don't give him anything to do. No. Nope. That is my
0: biggest issue with this part of the film is that they introduce all of these characters. And I know like when we think about the characters that we meet on the college campus, like we don't know anything about Portia de Rossi's character. We don't really even know anything about Cece's character, but because they are cast with recognizable actors, I feel like we are more likely to like them, whereas these people are nobodies.
2: But you could even argue, though, yeah, we don't know much about them. Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gayhart don't get death scenes, so all we know is their bitchy one-liners, which are really fun. Right. Sarah Michelle Gellar, Cece, we don't know much about her, but she at least gets a whole fucking set piece where we do at least kind of, not even get to know her, but we get to spend time with her. Mm -hmm. the closest we get to that with these new characters is the sarah darling bit which is why that set piece is as effective as it is which again as we already just discussed isn't super effective yeah when dion is that his name (laughs) yes when dion dies (laughs) it's like we get no sorry it's tyson the actor's name is dion oh Oh, my god we're so terrible (laughs) when tyson dies it's just a quick like scooby-doo rug pull and then he gets tossed over a balcony oh my god and then they won't even show us that, yeah. No, and Tom Perrin's, again, cool set, we'll talk about in a minute, but like, he blows up, like, basically, all of these deaths, they're in an ensemble. They don't get mm-hmm. their own set piece. They're just, like, killed off in quick succession. Yeah, I mean, that's why I made the
0: red shirt reference, because it feels like they're literally just here as bodies to be killed later. Yeah, exactly. So movie shut down, Roman taken away, Sid gets a brief call from Ghostface using her mother's voice. And then we go to Jennifer Jolie's house. So this is where we get a little bit more exposition about the relationship between Jennifer Jolie, Dewey, and also Stephen Stone. Quick thing though, I don't love the Sid's ghost mom stuff. I don't either. It's their deliberate attempt to cast doubt on whether Sidney has gone crazy.
2: But it doesn't work for me. And ghosts don't belong in my Scream movie. (laughs)
0: <laughs> i feel like there would have been better ways to have addressed the fact that she is haunted by the memories of what has happened to her in the previous two right. films without trying to literally embody it i kind of get it that roman is such a shit director that he would be orchestrating this sort of stuff but that also doesn't make sense then that it happened earlier in the film yeah exactly. like it happens unprompted after her dad drops off the groceries right
2: I get what they're trying to do. I just don't think it's well executed. No, I agree with that. So now we're in Jennifer's house and I do enjoy all of this. This is very comedy heavy. Mm -hmm. It's also the only time after Scream 2 that we get a mention of Tatum. (laughs) Uh, I
0: I actually clocked it. There's another brief unsaid reference to Tatum. But yeah, this is where Stephen Stone actually calls out Tatum to Dewey.
2: Who's the killer. And then gets stabbed, yeah. Stab in the back. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, also, okay, so again, people refer to this as, oh, it's Scooby-Doo, but, like, scream. hmm Because not only does he get stabbed in the back, he gets thrown, and, like, the knife gets pushed in his back against the wall. And then the killer frying pans him in the face twice.
0: Yeah, it's starting to approach camp.
2: Yes, and I think had the film embraced that camp factor it would be a better movie for it. Yeah, I think it wouldn't have satisfied Scream fans. No! Oh, it would have been a terrible finale closer, but it would have been, as a movie, more successful. Right. And that is the problem, right? They're trying to bring
0: everything to fruition to wrap this up as a trilogy, But then they're also giving us these very out of place comedic vibes because they're saying, A, it's Hollywood and also B, because of the real life context, we can't do what we would maybe normally do. Right. Yeah. So again, it's like, okay, do we want to forgive the film for not being able to do that stuff? Or do we say like, fuck, I mean, 20 years later, we still are watching this movie.
2: And it's not that enjoyable. I think if it was the last Scream film, I would be more willing to forgive it. But now that we have Scream 4 and we're getting Scream 5, I'm kind of like, all right, movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not as forgiving anymore. Yeah. Hashtag Kevin Williams, would never. Yep, 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 yep.
0: (laughs) Okay. This part, I actually do like. The facts. <laughs> I wish it would go on a little bit longer. Yeah. So they discover Stephen Stone's body and they freak out. The lights go out. They run out of the house. The fax machine starts. It's feeding them pages of the script. Tom goes back into the kitchen. He gets blown up. And it all kind of works for me.
2: It does. I know I mentioned how I like the Sarah Darling bit. This, I think, is possibly the most successful sequence in the film for being captivating moderately suspenseful Mm -hmm. it's really silly because the the killer is really banking on someone using a lighter to see the pages or that they would even go back in to read the pages Mm -hmm. also where is roman that he's like faxing this shit and can see them it doesn't make any sense oh yeah again don't think about the logistics the funny thing is like in 2000
0: again we're right on that cusp of everybody having very easy access to cell phones and people They don't use cell phones so much as we have cloned cell phone voices in this film. But, like, if you made this movie nowadays, people would just use their phone to light it, and then you'd have to come up with a completely different plan to blow everybody up.
2: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, yes, the surviving members from this party roll down the hill. There is a hilarious line from Parker Posey. It's, I think, ADR'd, but... Where the hell were you? No, not that part. It's while they're
2: rolling down the hill, she goes, I can't stop rolling! I don't think I've even ever heard that before. Wait, is that really in the movie? Yeah, man. I have seen this movie so many times, and I have never heard that.
0: It's so funny. It's because you're not seeing her, you're watching, I think, Gale, and maybe Dewey, but yeah, they're rolling, and you just hear
2: Jennifer Jolie,
0: I can't stop rolling! (laughs)
2: That makes me like the movie a little bit more. B minus, y'all. B minus. There we go. Slowly (laughs) engine you up. I've never heard that before. Oh, it's really funny. Yeah.
0: Okay, so they get to the bottom of this hill, and Ghostface tries to attack Gale. Dewey ends up saving her, but there's this moment of indecision where both Gale and Jennifer Jolie call for him, and he picks Gale. (gasps) So this means that Jennifer Jolie gets very angry, and she punches Dewey, and then she gets punched in the face. This is our callback to one and two, and then, of course, we get the infamous line, Trace, if you will.
2: My lawyer liked that.
0: Apparently it was an improvised line from... Parker Posey? Parker Posey.
2: Oh my god, Parker Posey. I know you'll never listen to this, but holy fuck. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If you ever do, I love you so
0: much. Just so good. And uh, of course, Angelina is still kicking around, so this is where she stumbles out and we get another picture of Maureen Prescott. We missed it earlier in the house. Uh, There was a quick scene with Gail and Dewey where they talked about these pictures. They tie it back to Sunrise Studios. And Molly went missing when she was 19 or 20. And they think
2: that it's because she came to Hollywood to be an actress. Because, yeah, because her pictures have the same background as the pictures that Jennifer Jolie has in her headshots. Correct. Yes. All right, so
0: this is where we reintroduce Sydney into the A plot because she is no longer out living in the woods. She has come to L.A., which is great because Kincaid wants to see her. (laughs) I will give props to Courtney Cox for this moment where she asks Dewey, do you have her number stored in your memory? And Dewey just looks up like, hmm, do I? And
2: Gail goes, phone memory. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's really good, actually. See, again, it's comedy that's not trying too hard. That's the thing. This movie tries so hard. Well, or the
0: character-based comedy works, right? Yeah, 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 you're right. It's very hit and miss when it comes to the poking fun at Hollywood stuff. Yeah. So this is where we get possibly my least favorite scene of this film, the introduction of Martha Meeks, never-before-seen sister of Randy, played by out-lesbian Heather Materazzo. So I love her. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we talked about her last year, nearly to this very week. Yeah. She's great. This movie does jack shit with her.
2: Yeah, it, it sucks. Although, I mean, again, risk of spoiling things. Mm-hmm. Rumor has it, I've just heard Grapevine... Bind- Do you think she's going to come back? She might be in Scream 5. I would love that because it feels like they need to pay this off. Yeah, I agree. And again, wouldn't that be great if Scream 5 like, retroactively made you appreciate Scream 3 more while also still being a really good movie? I mean, sure, if you want to <laughs> put it on that pedestal and make it climb <laughs> over that mountain, okay. So this whole thing, I I don't love, I hate this Randy cameo, but Mm -hmm. negative feedback following the death of Randy in Scream 2 had the production consider methods of having his character survive to appear in Scream 3, including having the character's family hide him away for safety while recuperating him from his injuries, but it was deemed too unbelievable, and the idea was replaced with the character appearing in a minor role via a pre-recorded video message, which, by the way, final product is three minutes long, they filmed over two hours of footage with jamie kennedy to get this done it is
0: madness i mean honestly if you listen to the audio commentary you will hear just how frequently they reshot things or did like alternative versions of it so i'm not surprised by the two hours but it is nonsense like i get that they wanted jamie kennedy to come back We all sort of like Randy. It's been interesting, actually, this last year, Trace. Yeah. We have always been very pro-Randy, and we talked very openly about that. And I feel like in the last year, there's been a bit of a shift culturally, and now people are acknowledging that Randy is kind of a shit character, and it's made me
2: reevaluate the way that I approach the first two films. He's a movie incel, is basically what he is. Yeah. He's not a douchebag, even though he just creepily follows through to college, but... I see the complaints about him and I understand them. This role of his right here makes no fucking sense. And it doesn't make me like him anymore. It makes me like him less actually.
0: Yeah, this to me is probably the least successful attempt to buy this film to stick with the, Oh, there's something new about a third film. The first film gets properly recognized for reinventing what slashers are doing in terms of meta approaches. Mm -hmm. And then the sequel obviously tackles the sequels and some, Folks quibble with whether or not it does a good job with this. this idea of rules of a trilogy a doesn't make a lot of
2: sense. no and
0: B comes to nothing.
2: killer superhuman. you gotta decapitate him or blow him up which ps blowing up does never equal death like a blow mm-hmm. a, an explosion is the easiest escape for a killer. I hate that line. <laughs> Anyone including the main character can die. this means you sit okay, well, no one dies, which mm-hmm. I'm fine with, sure, but people have issues with that, and I get that right. And then the past will come back to bite you in the ass, and he sends you committed in the past, they're about to break out and destroy you. Which is kind of true, except that that would only
0: work if we're talking about Maureen. Right? And a that also implies that it's Maureen who is responsible for this, and it's fucking not. It's Roman. Yeah, that is something that Sid actively addresses in the climax of this film. But I do feel like there is a ton of inappropriate slut shaming slash victim blaming in this movie, oh, and there it's is.
2: really uncomfortable. It's all at Maureen. Maureen yeah. needs her own I mean, I, I don't want it, but like she needs her own prequel movie. <laughs> that was honestly my
0: fear when they started to talk about like, making new screen films is that they were going to give us the first year and follow Maureen, like kind of a Twin Peaks walk with fire thing. And I was like, nope, thank you. Ugh, no, 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 don't want it. I will say, as much as people don't like Randy, and I don't think that Jamie Kennedy needed to come back for this, I do like his sign-off line where he says, good luck, godspeed, and for some of you, I'll see you soon. I don't like
2: it. Really? No, I don't it's think it's done. touching.
0: You're just done with the whole thing,
2: aren't no, you? No, but it's just very much like a, it's a somber note to end on what's meant to be a funny scene. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. so it, it totally doesn't it's off balance and doesn't work for me
0: okay yeah
2: i can see that so at this point after being warned
0: that all bets are off and everybody's at risk this is when gail decides she's going to go off solo
2: <laughs> oh yeah okay. oh yeah this when the movie really kicks into high gear though <laughs>
0: Yeah, because this is where we get the Gail and Jennifer show. And it's also where I think we get the single best cameo of this film, which is Carrie Fisher talking about
2: how she is a Princess Leia lookalike. So apparently they offered this role to Jamie Lee Curtis and she turned it down. Hmm. Okay. And so I'm assuming it would have been like a Halloween gag. Right. But Carrie Fisher, bright, shining star as she is, said, Hmm. Fuck yeah, I'll do that. Give me a cigarette. (laughs) (laughs) i mean anybody who knows carrie
0: fisher will know that she is completely open to making fun of herself and all of her vices so i think this is a spot-on role i don't know that jamie lee curtis would have been a good fit although having now seen her in scream queens i do think that she probably would have played it just as well
2: i think she would have too but honestly man like I like that it's Carrie Fisher in this. It's really Mm -hmm. fun. Her little jab at Judy Juergenstern. I also (laughs) love that she just knows the face of every single actor that has come through that studio.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) It's a testimony to the people who like work the front end of businesses. It's like the people you don't want to piss off are always the assistants and like the clerks because they remember
2: everything. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Fuck yeah.
0: You know, we're going to get to the reappraisal of this film in light of Me Too and Mm -hmm. how it's weirdly addressing what will ultimately happen to Harvey Weinstein, but I find it uncomfortable knowing that Weinstein actually also recommended Carrie Fisher for this, and knowing... What she was like in real life, I would have been very interested to see if she would have had comments about him. She, of course, died in 2016, Ugh. a year before Me Too happened.
2: I actually cried when she died. Like, oh, yeah, I was yeah, never a Star Wars dick. fan, but
0: like, I mean, like, I, I like her. And yeah. it just, I cried. She's like the people's princess of pop culture.
2: Yeah, it's just, she's just so acerbic. Like, I really want to read her memoirs, actually, because I'm, I'm sure they're great. Oh my god, she's a
0: brilliant writer. So yeah. Carrie Fisher, she's an absolute dream. This is where they discover that, of course, Maureen had a stage name of Rena Reynolds. Mm-hmm. think of that name. That sounds like a porn star
2: name, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. What, what is Carrie
0: <laughs> <Richard>? <laughs> You're like, and I have nothing further to say.
2: I, I, I'm just like, Rena Reynolds and Judy Juergenstern. Kruger right. really liked alliteration. I actually think that Carrie Fisher's name in this movie... Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's actually really funny. So it's Rena Reynolds, Judy Juergenstern, and then Carrie Fisher's name is Bianca Burnett goodness i can't come on
0: <laughs> what are we doing with names in this movie
2: i love alliteration but come on dude it's a fallback
0: yeah it definitely seems like okay well let's just make this a thing in screen three yeah
2: exactly yeah
0: okay so we get a yet another angelina red herring moment with sid in the
2: bathroom did you know that this bathroom is a replica of the bathroom from the first movie I did. I did not know that until now. (laughs) Really? No, I never. I I think is that bathroom scene in the first movie is so weird to me. Like, I know we love it because of homicide, Mm -hmm. but it just never right. I never got it. But I get it now. Well, I think part of it is that in this
0: case, it's flipped, right? Like we're seeing it from the other end. So it doesn't immediately click because you're not seeing them where we saw them in the first film. Like they're actually mirrored. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, sure, whatever. Honestly, all of the Angelina red herring stuff doesn't work for me because I don't ever buy her as the killer.
2: Yeah, well, and again, it's it makes you wonder if the original ending had gone through and she was one of the killers. Would this work better? Right. And folks, in case you didn't know, we are going to talk about that. But yes,
0: Angelina was originally one of the killers. There were going to be two. Yeah. Okay, so now we get to one of your favorite set pieces, Trace. So this is where Sid finds the Woodboro set of Stab 3, and we get her replaying dialogue from her bedroom scene with Billy. See, I like all this. No, I, as I said, I like it. I just don't think that they do enough mm. with it. I will give a shout out to the fact that there is a Creed poster on the wall of Sidney's <sighs> fictitious bedroom. This oh. franchise and their relationship to Creed, man.
2: No, that should have been in my, my rapid fire at the beginning. It's like the bangs, Patrick Dempsey, the comedy, and Creed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a boot for me. <laughs> they even, like, name-drop Creed in the commentary. Where they're like, oh, we were so lucky to get this Creed song. And it's like, come oh, on, us no. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> so, okay, th- this home replica chase, what I love about it, it, do- it does, like, completely duplicate her chase scene from the first movie, like, when she's running up the stairs.
0: Correct. I will also say screen two, when Cece is running up the stairs and throwing things at the killer.
2: Yes. But, you know, again, you remember one, you remember she has that weird door that locks the other door. And mm-hmm. as a viewer, you're going through this scene like, oh, like, I-, I know what's happening. And yeah, close that closet door. And so when we actually get the reveal that there's nothing there, I think that's a really, really cool little surprise that the movie has for us. Mm-hmm. This scene was not present in the script itself. Craven paid to have the sets constructed knowing he wanted to revisit the original film in some manner. Yep. After the construction of the sets, the scene was then written around the resulting areas producing this scene in the final film. So crazy. But again, th- that's Craven. You can have a director like Michael Bay who's like yeah, Megan Fox, show your tits. But you can also have a director, like Cra- a director like Craven who is like hey, I care about this franchise, I care about these characters, even though I'm only doing this particular movie so I can make my Meryl Streep violin teacher movie. I still give a shit about it. And... I don't know what to say about Craven's direction in this film because it does feel kind of flat, honestly. It's a little paint by numbers. Like, please
0: let me get to my Meryl Streep exploitation movie.
2: Yes. <laughs> but when you hear stories like that, when it's like, hey, Craven was changing the script with Kruger to say, mm-hmm. hey, no, the characters are like this. He was adding this scene to give him more... Because pro- honestly, I think when you walk away from this movie, this is one of the scenes that you do remember and yes. that it was Craven's idea speaks volumes. Yeah, no, I I completely agree with that. It's a good scene, and
0: my biggest complaint is just I wish that they did more with it. Yeah. I particularly like the moment where she goes to throw open the door after she's run up the stairs, and she almost falls because it's a set. Because at this point, you've so completely forgotten that she's on a set because you're so used to seeing what this house looks like. Yeah. Scream 3 is so clever in activating your memory of 1 in that regard, and then
2: using that to play off your expectations. That's actually what I'm saying, though. Is Actually, even the score that Marco Beltrama uses here mimics the score from 1. Right. So you actually feel like you're watching the same scene, and you know what's going to happen. So yeah, Mm -hmm. when she walks up, there's something there. It's great. And then we get this scene, sorry, the next part of this scene, where she walks into her mom's murder room. <sighs> so i want to like this but this is Ghosted mom stuff i like it until that i like i don't need the mom or no. ghost face under the sheet using the no. mom's voice which by the way how
0: mm-hmm.
2: presumably from those three horror movies that she made with john milton back yeah. in the day. but again like it works up until the body rises because when she walks yeah. in and she sees the blood everywhere she sees the body like I think this is really, really good. And it's a really good examination of trauma, which it's not really examining it. All we're getting is Sid's eye, Nev Campbell's eye acting here. Yeah. And it's good. Like, imagine walking into a movie replica set of your real life mother's murder. Like, mm-hmm. this is really cool. But then the film, yeah, does this ghost shit, which I'm just like, ugh.
0: Yeah and problematically it never really gives Sid time to process that because she's so worried about being stalked by the killer that it has to be Dewey it has to be Kincaid no Ghostface isn't in here oh we don't believe you and I mean I know we're talking about a fucking slasher movie but considering what Screen gives us and the development the arc that it gives Sid I would have loved for this to have just like take a couple of extra beats and let us sit with what Sid would go through having to relive that scene, that crime scene. Because also yeah. for us, this is the first time we've ever seen it. We've never seen the crime scene. They never showed that to us in other films. Mm. So this is a brand new moment for us too. And the film doesn't let us sit with it.
2: Yeah, I agree completely with you. It's again, on paper, a great idea that isn't executed well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a combination of editing maybe even direction and the writing.
0: Um, I'll give credit to Craven for directing this part, but I will agree that the other parts of this movie do feel a little more flat than I'm used to from him. Right. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so sadly, that is the end. We will not revisit this set. And that's a wrap on the Woodsboro.
2: And in case you didn't like Kincaid enough, we get this part where she mentions Woodsboro because she's like, hey, I was in my house. And he goes, that's not Woodsboro, Sydney. And Hmm. it is... The most reprehensible (laughs) line from this stupid-ass cop character.
0: Yeah, remember that we're not entirely sure whether we're supposed to trust him at this point, so this is them trying to cast a shadow of a doubt
2: on him and then get her into a car with him. Well, but also cast doubt on her sanity. Like, that's the thing. Like, And I don't know that the film is successful in either one of these things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would love to hear from other folks, did you watch this movie and ever for a moment think, oh yeah, Sid has lost her marbles.
2: Or Dempsey's the killer.
0: Maybe. I wondered because he could have been a kind of Mickey where he only shows up a couple of times.
2: I think if he was the killer, I would have like actively
0: hated this movie. That is the problem. Like Angelina just shows up all the time. You're like, okay, well that's red herring. And Kincaid is over the top. Yeah. I don't think that this is a good performance from Dempsey for the most part. When he's kind, I actually think it's okay. But when he's trying to come off as menacing, morally questionable yeah, yeah. or menacing, I'm just like, dude, come on. Yeah. Who are you trying to convince
2: here? I totally agree.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's cut back to the other storyline that we're following, which is Gail and Jennifer and Dewey. They break into Milton's office and they want to talk about Rena Reynolds and... You're obsessed with her and you're obsessed with her daughter! (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) It's so good. If nothing else for that line delivery, this scene needs to exist... This is where we get the uncomfortable yeah. intersection between reality and filmmaking in Scream 3. But I do think that this is also the reason why the film has been reappraised in the wake of Me Too. So Milton is very clearly a stand-in for a certain kind of director. yeah. But now we read him
2: as a Harvey Weinstein figure. I think it's a really fascinating I mean, again, especially now, I mean, I don't know what Aaron Kruger knew about Weinstein. Mm-hmm. But you know that Wes Craven directing this scene is like, well, this is Harvey Weinstein. Like, especially what we know now about him, right? Right. So, I mean, yeah, there are clearly parallels here. Um, in 2019, so just uh, two years ago, the editor, Patrick Lucier he basically said of those particular themes and Wes Craven's approach to them... He goes, Wes, I think, was very interested in that character of Henriksen as not necessarily the villain. I mean, he certainly is a villain, but as a catalyst for the villain's motivation. Mm -hmm. He's really the spark for the events or retconned that he is the spark for those events in the entire series. And I do think it's a fascinating thing, right? Right. It's just like the movie doesn't explore it enough. We get this one scene and then we get his death later. So it's kind of like, all right. Yeah, and it plays just a little too broadly. Like, I get that they don't want
0: to hammer it home, but having Henriksen deliver lines like, this is not the city for innocence," and you're just like, oh, come on. It's not handling it with the directness or the deafness that it needs to. It's landing somewhere in the middle, which leads you to just know that Milton's not a good figure, but also the film never clearly establishes that, you know, he's been doing this to other women, that he is a monster. Like the film just kind of wants to
2: say, yeah, this is a why. And we're not really going to explore that. In the film itself, it's underdeveloped, but I think the most fascinating thing to come out of this is that since Me Too, people have talked about this more, and people are observing things more, so the film honestly doesn't really do a lot with it, but we as viewers, as journalists, as consumers, are looking at this and saying, oh, I see this. There's commentary Mm -hmm. in this movie about sexual misconduct in Hollywood, predatory men on the casting couch, or whatever. And it's great that we're having these conversations, and you you do wonder, you know, like, did Harvey Weinstein watch any of this movie and be like, you fuckers. Oh shit. (laughs) But you could also say, okay, well, d- did they sneak it in? I don't think so because it's just too prominent. In the yeah, press, like that's, right? like the, the whole franchise hinges on, Har- hinges on Harvey Weinstein being the A catalyst, sexual for this. predator. Yeah, yeah, and it's really cool. The problem is, yeah, like again, it's there. It that's what this is about. But like, we don't get to see Sid like talk to. Lance Henriksen, you know? No, she she meets both of the men who are apparently responsible for all
0: of the horrible shit in her life. She meets one of them when his throat is slit, and the other
2: one when he talks about being her brother. Honestly, that might be the... This film it's has the, lots of problems. It's a big problem, yeah. No, it is. This film has lots of problems with tone and whatever, and the writing and whatever, the meta. But... I think had they done something more with Sid to give us some more catharsis, and again, we'll talk about the very last shot, which I do think is a really good ending for the character, mm-hmm. but we don't get anything with her to react to this, and even when yeah. it's with Roman in the end, it's just pure anger and like, fuck you, you're... I, there's good moments, there's good dialogue there, but like what you were wanting in the, the the replica house scene, there's no moment to like sit and like resonate with this, and that's yeah. what I wish we had. <sighs> It's disappointing, too, because if you think back to that first film,
0: really, most of Sydney's arc in just the standalone screen, the first one, it's about her processing the realization that she really didn't know her mother at all. Right. And Scream 3 seems to want to do the same thing by saying there was so much more even than that, that you didn't know about your mom. But it also doesn't want to have Sydney come to any kind of reckoning with that. Like, I'm not suggesting I wanted scenes of Sid agonizing over the fact that her mom was gang raped three ways till Sunday, as mm. Roman so politely says no, in the climate. They fucked her three ways from Sunday. <laughs> yeah. And let's be clear, the insinuation that I take from this is not that Maureen was a willing participant or even that she was, you know, doing it for the casting coach. It's like this woman was coerced by people in positions of power, and that
2: is rape. It is, but here's the thing. The movie doesn't slut-shame her. Billy and Stu slut-shame her. Mm -hmm. But it takes her quote-unquote sluttiness as a direct result of her rape in her past. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't sit fully well with me. Like, oh, she was raped, so she became a quote-unquote slut-slash-cheating wife. Well, bear in
0: mind that this is coming from the mouths of exclusively male characters.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. But also, I'm just going with what the film is giving us, right?
0: Yeah, it's definitely making a correlation. Like, if you are a victim of sexual assault, you will go on to become a promiscuous woman who will then become an adulterer and ruin other people's marriages and produce serial killers.
2: And that's the only way, like, you you could give me a Maureen Prescott prequel. Again, I don't want it because I just don't really care. But (laughs) I hate, I'm sorry, it's not up against Maureen or this arc. I just hate prequels so much. I really don't care.
0: Well, I don't think there's a lot to be mined from that, except for the opportunities to explore what Maureen went through. Because really, she's like a specter that just hangs over the entire franchise. Like, even in this film where she actually gets to do a certain amount, she's Mm. still a ghost. Like, she's just haunting the proceedings.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So all this to say, I appreciate that the film was trying to interrogate some of these things that were obviously happening in real life and maybe directly commenting on what was happening with the Weinsteins. Yeah. I just wish that we could have gotten more and maybe that wasn't possible in the year 2000, but I appreciate that people in our day and age can now go back and look at
2: this film like people like this film more because of this storyline. And I think that's great. His dialogue here, Lance Henriksen's dialogue, he says nothing happened to her that she didn't invite. Things got out of hand. Maybe they did take advantage of her. Maybe the sad truth is this is not the city for innocence. That's a shitty ass line. Yeah. No charges were brought. And the bottom line is Rena Reynolds wouldn't play by the rules. Like, again, it's shitty. It's But it, it rings true, given what we know about Weinstein now and uh-huh. about Hollywood. Yeah. There's a lot to mind there and a lot to discuss. It's just, yeah, I don't think the movie particularly handles it well.
0: Yeah, it proposes it, and then it's like, okay, you do the hard work, we're gonna move on with our
2: slasher storyline and our red yeah, herrings. <laughs> absolutely. But that's the thing, It's like, is this scream, you know? Like, I, I love that this is in this movie, but it's like, yeah, like we're fighting two things here. We've gotta move on with the slasher story, but we're also trying to keep it comedic because of Columbine, but we're also having this Harvey Weinstein meta thing. So, it's just like trying to do too many things at once. It's a lot, yeah. And as a result, unfortunately, it doesn't Really do
0: most of them well. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of our red herrings, uh, we do jump back to Kincaid and Sid in his office. This is where we find out about his Hollywood connections. Possibly worst line in this entire movie is oh my where God. Sid asks him yes. what his favorite scary movie is. Trace the answer.
2: My life, Joe. I wrote oh, oof God. I wrote oof, oof. in all like caps. all caps. <laughs> 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 It awful. is what it is terrible. It is the worst line in this movie. I don't even know what the fuck they were thinking with this. Like it feels
0: like okay, we're going to put in something better later and then we just never got around to it. It
2: is terrible. I'm so glad you brought that up because lit- I was going to do it if you didn't, but like it is atrocious. You
0: have to. It's like in line with how good the Parker Posey stuff is. You're like, and then an example of terrible writing.
2: I don't think there's a single line in the franchise that is as bad as that one. And I know that sounds mm. hyperbolic, but I'm no, not going to lie. No. Mm -hmm. Like, I cannot think of something that has made me cringe more than that line in this franchise. Honestly, know what it reminds me of? Hmm. The absolute thud that
0: follows Halle Berry's line about the toad struck by lightning. Do you know what happens
2: to a toe when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. I'm Halle Berry and I hate being in this movie. Oh my god. I recently said I really want that kind of
0: e-true Hollywood story about what happened between her and Brians Singer.
2: Yeah, that's a, fair, that's a fair request.
0: Well, I mean... Let's just be honest, it was probably racism and sexism. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, good times. Okay, so this is when Dewey gets a call from quote-unquote Sydney. Okay. Yeah.
2: Oh, we haven't talked about the voice decoder. Yeah, okay, so I, I don't like this thing because as soon as you know it exists, mm-hmm. which you know from the first scene of the movie. Yeah, from cotton scene, yeah. It's just like, okay, well, we know what this is. Like, there's no suspense here. And granted, do you think the movie is tr- actually thinks it's fooling us? I don't know if it does. No, I think we're supposed to be in the
0: know, but the characters don't. But so I don't The like tension that. comes from the characters potentially getting into dangerous situations, and we know it's coming. I actively hate that.
2: That doesn't belong in this movie
0: uh yeah i mean i can't fight you on it i don't love it i don't think i hate it as much as you but even in 2000 people were like so what the fuck is up with this magical voice
2: but it's all it's it's, it's, hey y'all we know it's we know it's not sydney i don't like being ahead of these characters i don't maybe i'm wrong i don't think there's a point in one two or four where we are ahead of the characters yeah i feel like we're always with them And this is the only film in the franchise, to my knowledge, where we are ahead of the characters and thus they look stupid. And Mm -hmm. I don't like thinking that these characters are stupid.
0: And more so than ever, it feels like a lazy plot contrivance. Like, how am I going to get people from point A to point B? Okay, well, how about
2: if the killer has a magical voice Well, and when you think about, okay, cool, the original climax is going to take place, let's say, in the studio set of Sydney's house. Mm -hmm. Oops, no, we're going to put it in this other house, mansion thing. How do we Mm -hmm. get everyone there? Well, let's write something up the morning of really quick. Right, yeah. We've got this great set.
0: It was used in Halloween H two O, and uh we're gonna make do with it, but we gotta get everybody there, so random voice calls. I will
2: say, never caught that fact, and even watch I was looking for things that looked familiar from Halloween H2O and I didn't see it. Okay, so I
0: was paying specific attention on the second rewatch, and I think the scene right before god damn it, I keep wanting to call her Angelica.
2: Angelina. Angelina
0: before she runs off in her wacky Cindy from Scary Movie 2 run when Gail and Jennifer are walking down the hallway. I think that's the hallway where Jamie Lee Curtis hides Josh Harnett and what's her face? And then they get a um,
2: show. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. That makes sense. Okay. I'm sorry. That was a very long diatribe to get to. That's that okay. Fact. No. By all means. It's already, this is a long episode. Fuck I'm it. I'm getting so tired. <laughs> We're going to go for three hours for our three-furs.
0: Jesus, no. Thank you. <laughs> On Scream Three. And you're editing all of them. <laughs> <laughs> also, I did not consent to threefer. We talked about that. <laughs> no, I know. I, we'll just call it the threes. The threes. God, that sounds like an, a Charlie Kaufman movie. <laughs> the horror thweers. No. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
2: Back to your corner, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag Kevin Williamson would never. Right.
0: Okay, so everybody gathers at this party. Let's go to the party. I've lost my spot.
2: Right. so I was like, oh, fuck. Like We're already at this party, which is the end of the movie. And I was like, that's a really long time to devote to this. But then I caught myself because I was like, okay, we're at the 75-minute mark. There's 40 minutes left of this movie. Right. But the first movie has the same Mm -hmm. thing, where we start the party with 50 minutes left of Scream.
0: Are you seeing the parallels to the first film now?
2: I am seeing it. The problem is the 50 minutes of Scream's climax go by so much faster and are so much more effective Mm -hmm. than the 40 minutes of Scream 3's climax.
0: Yeah, sadly, there just isn't a ton of stuff here that really grabs you. Like, I, I will give a shout out when we get to it. I think there's a moment that works very well for me. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they find the Ghostface costume. They've got the voice modifier. People start splitting up, which is dumb. We find <laughs> Roman's corpse and Jennifer is hiding. So this is the first kind of like get out of jail free card because Gail 100% checks
2: his pulse and he I, ain't dead. I hate this this roman's fake out death is the worst thing i hate it i remember watching it as a 13 year old 14 year old and being like well that doesn't seem right <laughs> 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 like we've never had this in a scream movie where it's like oh someone said oops they're not dead they're fake oh no sorry sorry i'm catching myself i was gonna say i think we have yeah it's billy so it's scream it. with billy it's billy yeah which again parallel to the first film it is a parallel to the first film, but it's not handled as well.
0: No, because in that first film, there's someone else to get Sydney away before she can properly check. Yeah, to make sure. No, that
2: Billy, dead. Billy gets stabbed. He says that stupid "C" line or "Sid" or whatever the fuck he says, and she has to run because the killer is right there. Yeah. With this, because it's Roman is the killer, he has to go through this whole thing of like it's setting up his own to, fake uh, murder. Yeah. <laughs> It's so bad.
0: I wouldn't actually mind it if they didn't let Gale get close to him. Like, if Jennifer had jumped out of the shadows. But also, like, why is Jennifer hiding in the shadows? Was she watching Roman while he was applying all... Like, it just doesn't make sense.
2: It would make sense if there was a second killer that could jump out and go after her. The problem is, it is the killer, the only killer, Mm -hmm. who is faking his own death. Also applying fake blood to his wound. Whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. Kruger misunderstood how the first film worked. Yeah. This is lazy, and it is Scooby-Doo. And I say that as someone who loves Scooby-Doo, but when you're walking into Scooby-Doo, you know what you're getting. Because Mm. it's stupid. This is secret Scooby-Doo, and it's bad. No, I mean, it's silly. It's stupid. This is reminding me of the worst things about Scooby-Doo, but the things that make Scooby-Doo Scooby-Doo. This is not Scooby-Doo. I have said Scooby-Doo a thousand times. I was going to say, can we move on now? (laughs) Move on.
0: Okay, so Gail and Jennifer make their way back upstairs. They run into Angelina. She reveals that there's a secret passage.
2: Shout out to the secret passages. I do like the secret passages. I do like that too, but again, not used enough. And when it is used, it's not used well. Uh, I'm going to politely disagree. Okay. Well, when we get to Parker Posey's
0: death, we can talk about that. right. Also, for someone who said you didn't want to go too negative,
2: you're being very negative. I know, I know, (laughs) I know. It's, ugh, I'm very frustrated, but I still think it's fun. (laughs) Okay. I'm just critiquing it. Lean into the fun a little more then. Okay, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. No, I mean, you're right. Because again, I don't dislike this movie. I just, okay, (laughs) you're going to laugh at me. Okay. I was looking at my letterbox today. And you rightfully pointed out to me last night when you said, are you all right? Because I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. hmm I give that movie a higher score than I give Scream 3. Oh, but those are different
0: contexts.
2: No, they, they 100% are. But if we're talking about franchise roles, like, mm. Next Generation, well, you could argue that movie about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is also very funny and silly. right? But Next Generation is very much like, oh, this is silly and stupid and makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But it almost like borderline embraces it. I know it's been a uh, year and a half since you've seen it. But like, it's just really entertaining to me and how bad it is. Well, and it's like that
0: consistently all the way through. Yeah. I mean, we don't know whether they were trying to make a good movie no. or not. But at least that movie is consistent. Whereas with Scream, you can feel these like peaks and valleys. Like, sometimes it's actually pretty good. And yeah. other times you're like, Roman's faking his own death?
2: What? Well, and that's the thing. Yeah, it's all about like what I'm feeling like the movie's trying to do. I don't know what Next Generation's trying to do, to be honest. <laughs> but I, I know that I really does. enjoy watching it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Whereas this, though, there's a, this is a big studio film that has designs. And I don't know if it accomplishes what it's trying to do. And that that's my issue with it. Right. The frustration is there. Like, I think that this is a better movie than The Next Generation, but I think that The Next Generation is better at doing what it's trying to do than what Scream 3 is. Right. Okay. So, I, I don't know. No, I get it. I get it. Okay.
0: So, at this point, mm. we kill off Angelina.
2: She didn't fuck that pig, Milton, to be whatever two second-rate actresses.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this leans into this idea that Hollywood is a place where in order to get ahead, you have to compromise on your values, because we also heard earlier that Tom tried to hit on her and she turned him
2: down. But then, of course, here she's saying she slept with Milton to get the role. But it also makes her like a real huge bitch. Like she was like the innocent slash red herring character in this movie. And then she becomes this huge bitch where she's, like, second-rate celebrities like you two. Mm -hmm. I'm like, this isn't the Angelina that I know that we've met. And granted, it could be, like, yeah, she's actually like this. But, like, then she immediately gets killed. Yeah.
0: And that's it. That's it. Yeah, because again, like you're going to do a big character reveal that she's actually been performing as a nice person the entire movie and secretly mm-hmm. she's as cutthroat as, say, a Gail Weathers, but then you just murder her before we can
2: really do anything interesting. But we do get that comment from Tom before he blows up where he's like, I bet she stepped on every single girl she could to get that part. And right. again, that's a really cool idea. And I'm sure she I mean, she did. She slept with Milton. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes from it, right? It's just, it's yeah. a It's a one line thing. They're observations that the film doesn't want to
0: address. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it just wants to keep making them, unfortunately. Well,
2: but then when you tie it into the Harvey Weinstein stuff, this Mm -hmm. character of Angelina almost comes across like, well, it's the victim's fault.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a bit of blaming as opposed to acknowledging, oh, Hollywood is a system that preys on the vulnerability of women who are trying to get ahead because it can just gobble them up because there's a million other women who would love to step in. For sure. Because even, like, the idea about the film getting shut down and what it does for people's careers, and even, you know, that line that you reference where Jennifer Jolie can just go back to must-see TV, it's played for comedy, but the reality is is that someone like Jennifer Jolie is much better prepared for what happens, because she does have something else she can fall back on. The Angelina character has nothing. This is all she has, which... Again, like they want to play her shoplifting all of these things for comedy, but there's something really terribly sad about the possibility that this small town girl just had the
2: one chance at fame and all she's got is a fucking ghost face. When she says, I may never win another role again, which again, win another role is funny in Mm -hmm. and of itself. Well, because she won it as a contest, right? Right. It's prescient because we have like Scream Queens, not the Jamie Lee Curtis show, but the one that MTV did where they had the Saw actresses. Like, Right, yes. It's very prescient. It's actually quite funny, mm-hmm. but it doesn't do anything with it. No.
0: They're all too disconnected. So we can put the pieces together in hindsight, but the film is really just interested in saying, like, oh, there's this smattering of covert sexual assault that happens. Everybody knows, but we sweep it under the table. But don't worry, it'll become important about yeah. Sid's
2: mom. So we get this next scene, which, OK, I will confess that I actually love this scene. So basically, it's like, you know, they see Angelina. Mm-hmm. Dewey's like, what's going on? And the killer comes and, like, punches him. They all end up in this bedroom, and they're all fighting the killer. Gail throws a vase at the killer. Jennifer ends Mm -hmm. up behind a trap door. Yep. I actually think all this is really fun, exciting action. It's very comedic. It's not very suspenseful. But it's also, (laughs) like, a situation that we've never really seen the Ghostface killer in before, where we're getting, like, four characters in one room (laughs) fighting Ghostface. And it's cool. I think it's great. It lasts for 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. But it's there. Yeah, it definitely
0: confirms that Tyson is completely useless. He tries to be the hero and it doesn't work out for him. But it is one of those like, oh, what would happen if
2: everybody ganged up on Ghostface when you had the chance? Hey, okay, do you love though when he's running down the stairs and he gets a, oh, you motherfucker. I do like that part. I do too. I
0: don't like the part where he gets the rug literally pulled out from under him.
2: I know, but that is Scooby-Doo. Like that is literally Scooby-Doo. Yes. And it's mind-boggling to me that anyone thought that was a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) When was Scooby-Doo the movie? The movie was 2002, so it was two years after this. Mm -hmm. But Zombie Island was two years before this. Oh, actually, Zombie Island was between Scream 2 and 3. (laughs) Oh, my God. We figured it out. The missing link. They were studying Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. (laughs) Aaron Kruger, we have figured you out, you fucker. You watch Oh Scooby- you motherfucker. He he watched Zombie Island and Witches Goes, that's what it was. Right. And then he studied dialogue from Scream One and Two. Yep, and then Craven was like, Let me help you with
0: this. Yeah, I'm I'm just gonna give you a couple of pointers. <laughs> I love it. Oh God. Okay, so now we get to Jennifer's death scene. So she has fallen through this trap door. She can't find her way out. The killer tracks her down, corners her. She's pounding against this double-sided mirror. Dewey shoots them out, but not fast enough, and
2: she's dead. Mm. Oh my god, that was really fast, but um, sorry, I was drinking my drink. (laughs) The first time I saw this movie, I didn't even know she died. Yeah, they do not hold on it for very long. Should we get that great line where she's like, I'm the killer in stab three.
0: Yeah. I mean, it kind of speaks back to what Cotton would have said if they had to kept the original openings. But also, it's like Tatum in one where she's like, I want to be in the sequel.
2: Oh, I don't know. Nevertheless, what an unceremonious death for mm-hmm. this character. I mean, I, you pointed out, I have um, not been the most kind to this movie in this recording. <laughs> This is my biggest, like, this movie is a crime because it does this to this character.
0: It's almost like they didn't know what they had, except that we know that Wes Craven was very much on board with what Parker Posey is doing in the performance. So it seems strange that they didn't want to give her a bigger set
2: piece. Well, again, that's where Columbine comes in, right? Like, we see her get stabbed. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Random Rewind, you can cut this out at any of you want... The editing is a bit weird <laughs> way back in Kelly Rutherford's death scene. Oh we, my god. No, I know I know, I know, I know, I know. But she gets stabbed in the back, but the film cuts. Like basically once the killer comes and like stabs her, the film mm-hmm. does a ju- not a cut, but a jump cut. To where it like shifts, but it's the same thing. And I was like, was there a blood spray that like they wanted to cut out? I don't know what's going on here. Hmm. That's what this scene feels like to me. Where it's like we see Parker Posey get stabbed in the stomach. Mm -hmm. And then she just spills out when Dewey does this stupid shooting the mirrors thing. Because he's going one at a time.
0: (laughs) It's so stupid
2: slow. (laughs) It's bad. Get a machine gun (laughs) and just shoot them all. Yeah, and if we want to play shoot holes
0: in the plot, then we can also say, so that was a dead end, presumably, unless Jennifer just couldn't figure out how to open up the other part of the trap door. But mm-hmm. where did Ghostface go? That's a great fucking question, dude. <laughs> I do <don't know.
2: laughs> That was always
0: my big thing, is I was like, he literally was right there, yeah. and that was a dead end.
2: Oh, and I'm sorry, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Courtney Cox's scream during this bit. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a female Wilhelm scream here. And whether it is just a Wilhelm scream or if it is Courtney Cox's scream mixed with a Wilhelm scream, I don't know. Do you want to explain what that is? Because you're saying it like everyone's going to know. Oh, you're right. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. A Wilhelm scream is a stock scream that they play in a lot of movies. It's typically a male scream, which you might hear right now. Ah! But there is a female Wilhelm scream that sounds like this. And then we get Courtney Cox's scream that sounds like this. Yeah, I mean, I
0: don't know why you're so surprised because you did just say it's a stock thing that they do. I just think it's silly. Like you have $40 million. Why are you using a stock scream? (laughs) As we've learned, movie making is not always a seamless process. So folks, if you didn't listen to our Terror Train episode from Homos on Haunted Hill, he mentioned that sometimes when people scream on set, they can actually blow the mic and then you have to go back and do it in post. So I just wonder if it was either Courtney Cox couldn't scream that well that day or she it just blew didn't the work mic. Out on set. It's <laughs> <That's laughs> like, I'm tired. I can't scream anymore. All right. So, okay. So... I do want to give a shout out to possibly my favorite scene in this section of the film when Gale gets attacked and she has to kick back against mm. the wall so that she and Ghostface fall.
2: I actually do like this too. But again, it's kind of redoing the cop car scene from 2. Mm-hmm. Where again, Ghostface is at the bottom of the stairs. And she's in the basement. and She's like, oh, I need to like crawl over him. There is a really good scare though, where he like stabs the stair. I think that's really cool. And then, yeah, we have her like... I mean, I guess we skipped over the part where they find the voice changer, but whatever. No, we mentioned it. You've just been drinking a lot. No. He's back on the drink. We kind of get this good moment, though, where she just called Dewey and he's like, well, how do I know this is you? But it doesn't last long enough, right? Well, because at this point, we are trying to ramp up. And bring Sydney into the movie. (laughs) Right. Because remember,
0: she's been off screen this entire time. (laughs) The comedy bit that works for me in this tail end part is where we see the knife get thrown and the camera actually follows the knife as it circles towards Dewey. And it just hits him in the face and knocks him out. So you like this? This for me is Scooby-Doo comedy that works.
2: Okay. I don't think it works personally, but I I can see why it works for you.
0: Yeah. Apparently they were actually trying to scare people that Dewey would die here. We were meant to think that he was just going to get a knife in the head and he would
2: die. They'll never kill Dewey unless Scream 5 maybe just decides to do it. <laughs> Only time will tell. Yeah, oh, One year away, y'all. Yeah.
0: Okay. So yeah. So at this point, it's like Sydney gets lured. She discovers that Gale and Dewey have been kept alive as bait. Kincaid is also there. Who could care? Do you buy this? That he keeps Gale and Dewey as bait. This is something that hasn't happened in any of the other Ever. movies, so it is a. Well, actually, no, we're wrong again. Derek from
2: Two. Fuck. You know Clearly what? You're we right. needed to revisit all
0: of the films before we
2: recorded this. <laughs> but it also seems like a pale imitation, right? Because they kill Derek. <laughs> True. And this isn't to say that I want Gale or Dewey to be killed. But with what this film sets up, it's clearly mimicking things from the first two movies, Mm -hmm. as you rightfully pointed out. It doesn't follow through on them.
0: I think part of it is that it's just doing the homage and there's not always a lot of satisfaction in that. So we did mention in our freaky episode that sometimes a homage just makes you think of another movie and it doesn't do anything more than that. And in this case, it feels like Scream 3 is saying, hey, remember all these great moments from 1 and 2? And we're like, yeah! And then Scream 3 goes, cool, we're going to move on. You're just like, okay, I mean, I guess I thought you were going to give us a bit more, but sure, okay.
2: (laughs) So yeah, she gets the gun, she gets metal detected, whatever the fuck. Whatever. What do we think about, it's your turn to scream, asshole? Uh, I like it. Really?
0: Well, I like that Sydney actually comes prepared with a plan. She's not just willingly walking into danger. You know what? That's (laughs) That's <laughs> You're like,
2: I was going to come down hard on it, but I'm going to refrain. I don't like the line. I do like the circumstances. Okay.
0: Yeah. You know what? I mean, the line's not super great, but this is where you could see somebody being like, yeah, Sid's going to be Linda Hamilton.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, and then we also get this fake out with Kincaid. Oh, who they only brought back. He wasn't in the original script to be in this scene, but mm. they realize he just disappeared from the movie. <laughs> Yeah. So they wrote him into this scene. Which is,
0: I guess, kind of admirable, because they were like, ooh, well, we don't just want a gaping plot point, but Kincaid is such a non-entity that when he does come back, I was like, okay, cool, how's it going? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs>
0: All right, so let's get to this ending, shall we? So. Yeah. Sydney gets locked in the screening room. She sees a video of her mother. Ghostface comes out. It is revealed to be Roman, the director that she has never met before. So he actually has to introduce himself. Oh, I didn't even... Th- she has never met Roman. She's never met him. That...
2: That feels like a missed opportunity. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, she's never met Milton and she's never met him. So then she gets upset when she watches this other dude kill Milton... I mean, presumably she's upset because she just watched somebody die. But it's like she
2: has no context for any of these people's motivations. <laughs> I need you to tell me this, too. So th- this scene is intercut with Dewey and Gale escaping, checking on Kincaid. Kincaid and... trying to get the door. Yes. Dewey sticking the pin in the outlet so oh. that he can short-circuit oh. it. I'm sorry. Dewey, the master of unlocking, and Resident Evil fans will understand what that means. In Resident Evil 1, the first game, there's a whole thing where Jill this character hands her a lockpick and he goes well you're jill the master of unlocking <laughs> it's really bad i think it cuts down on the on the suspense in what we're seeing in the in the sydney roman stuff there's also a really weird score choice when dewey frees himself and then he's freeing gail but we get this kind of like whimsical like dah, 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 type thing it doesn't feel like it belongs in this film it's very weird and it's intercutting with what should be a climactic momentous scene Mm -hmm. with sydney
0: yeah i think it's part of the problem with keeping gail and dewey alive in this moment is that we need updates about them and their status and whether they're trying to protect her or help her but you're right You know, the cross-cutting needlessly distracts us from what is turning out to be an incredibly large retcon of the entire franchise up to this point. Because this is when Roman reveals that, yes, he is her brother, that he tracked down Maureen, she basically said she didn't want anything to do with him. Fuck off,
2: child of mine.
0: (laughs) Right? Which, I mean, you know, okay, I want to bury that past behind me, especially if you think about it from her point of view. She's like, I went to Hollywood and then I was gang-raped.
2: Yeah, well, and there's a conversation to be had there, which had this movie been made in 2020, it might have had, but it doesn't have this in 2000.
0: Or it would have been picked over far more aggressively, like people would have been mad that they just randomly introduced this and then didn't unpack it. But yeah, so then Roman reveals himself to be the mastermind behind all of the events of Scream 1, where he groomed Billy, got him to recruit Stu and blame
2: Cotton Weary. So I want to point this out. This ending was filmed three times. <laughs> yeah, you could see it <laughs> in January 2000. Now, this is a month before the movie comes to theaters. Three months after completing principal photography, the ending was refilmed when it was decided to be an inadequate conclusion. Originally, the ending consisted of Sydney easily defeating Roman. There's no bit with Sydney getting shot, and there's no mother's dead. I've still got to make my movie. All right. Whatever. Did you watch these endings on the on the Blu-ray? I did, yeah. Yeah. It's much slower. It's not as exciting. Most of it comprises of Sydney, like, crouching down and hiding. Yeah. And their reasoning was, oh, well, the room's too small. It's not believable that she would be able to, like, crouch and hide from this person. Mm -hmm. There's
0: even a line in that deleted cut where Roman says, Sydney, the room's not that
2: big. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I do have to say this. I don't need her getting shot because I honestly, I don't know. Like when you first saw this movie, when she got shot, were you like, oh shit, she's shot.
0: Yes, admittedly. Okay. Because at this point, you know, we've had that Randy video where he said everyone can die, Sydney, even you. And I thought, fuck, what if they actually do kill Sydney in this concluding chapter? You're
2: going to hate me. I was more worried about Deputy Judy when she gets shot in Scream 4. Jesus Christ. (laughs) We're the best your chest! (laughs) In hindsight, what I've
0: come around to is there's kind of an interesting symbolism in that she wears the bulletproof vest and so does Roman. And you're like, oh, they really are
2: siblings because they think alike. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I don't love it, but... No, I do too. I guess I just I don't know. For me, it, 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 it was similar to the Sydney calling Dewey and Gale to be like, "I'm going to this party. By the way, I have a dead voice, but here you go. This is me, Sydney. I promise, it's me." Right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, guys, really, I swear it's me. <laughs> it's Sydney. me, Sydney.
2: It, it reached the same thing to me, where it was like, okay, this is the screenwriter like trying to like fake us out again. Right. Okay. Oh my, I am being a fucking negative Nancy. I'm no, sorry, guys. No, it's fine. I mean, this is not your favorite of the franchise. I enjoy. I, I enjoy watching it, but honestly, yeah, I would watch any of the other films over this one. Sure. I will say the best moment that captures
0: what Sydney is like during these climactic moments is where Roman is just going on and on and on. And she just goes, can we get on with it? I've heard all this shit before. I think
2: that's great. I think the fuck you, fuck you. I I think that is great. It's just the overall concept of this character. (laughs) Right. That I think doesn't
0: work. It's tricky, too. I remember back in 2000, people really came down hard on Scott Foley because they didn't find him creepy enough. They didn't feel that he was compelling or believable as a villain. I mean, he's not. He's definitely not the most memorable of all of the Scream villains. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Roman's really also not a huge character. Like, he doesn't get the crazy villain monologue that some of the other killers get. But
2: it's tough because people really were just like, no, but you're that guy from Felicity. As someone who's never seen Felicity ever a single episode, there's something to be said though about this scene that doesn't really work for me mm-hmm. compared to a Mrs. Lumis scene which is so cathartic and even the Billy scene which is so cathartic. Like, right. there's so much like in that where you're like, oh shit, oh fuck! Yeah. And then you get this and it just doesn't have the same impact and I know you wanted, Joe, you wanted to start, not start, but you wanted to discuss like the impact of retconning the first two films. Yeah. It makes sense when you think about this film
0: being the end of a trilogy and the film stopping here that they wanted to bring everything back full Mm. circle, but it's also uncomfortable as a viewer to have this film kind of Scooby-Doo pull the rug out from under its audience by saying, hey, everything that you thought you knew about these other two movies, it actually comes back to this one super bland white dude who's not very compelling. Like, he's the mastermind of all of these Scream films. And that
2: that is just a really hard sell that I don't think this film ever overcomes. I think that the issue here... So with Scream 1, Billy is the boyfriend. He is a character in that movie. Right. Stu is a secondary character, but we still know him. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Loomis arguably has less to do in Scream 2 than oh, yeah. what Scott Foley has in Scream 3.
0: Yeah, she's kind of not a character, but then... Laurie Metcalf plays her to such
2: the nth degree. It'd
0: be like if Parker Posey was revealed to be the killer.
2: But also, Laurie Metcalf's character is tied to the killer in One. So even though she has, before her reveal, has less to do in Scream 2, Mm -hmm. we can fill in the blanks because she's Billy's mother. Right. Laurie Metcalf's role is a familial blood relationship to the killer from One. Okay. Okay. Roman is just a, hey, I'm your secret brother. I'm going to show this video to your boyfriend. The connection isn't as deep for me. The Roman reveal seems to me so more out of left field than what Mrs. Loomis has going for it. Right.
0: Yeah, because this is a character that we didn't even know existed. Like we knew that Billy had a mother because she's referenced in one as having left. And that's part of the reason why he's fucked up. I mean, again, this film is trying to play off of eatable damage as an excuse for why young men become killers. Like Roman is basically just Billy, only older. I think part of it is also that they're trying to go with the familial connection to Sydney because this is Sydney's story and it's about her family and her trauma. Right. I just don't think it works. Like, I don't know if having more Roman would have helped. I don't think having less of him does. But also, I just don't think that this is a twist that could have been executed satisfactorily.
2: So, do you want the original ending where Angelina is also a killer?
0: I think it would have helped to excuse some of the plot points. So folks, Mm. if you don't know, Angelina was meant to be Roman's lover, and I think a former classmate of Sydney, but part of this was also meant to be far creepier and more insidious and kind of nastier. Like, there's a line in the original draft, so this is the second version that Aaron Kruger wrote, where Roman, referring to Angelina, says... And I kind of keep her around because it's a bit of a turn on. You know, in the movies, she's you, Sid. So every time I jump her bones, hmm. I'm
2: doing you technically. See, okay, that is creepy as fuck. But that's like something that's like, oh, that's fucked up. I get this character now. Yeah, like he he's far sicker here. You're just like, oh, you're just the whining mama's boy. Which I mean, if we're going with the Lance and Harvey Weinstein stuff, cool. You're a stupid little incel. But then I think
0: we needed more of Milton. Yeah. It almost seems like Milton should have been inadvertently grooming Roman in that way, right? Like there should have been a, a twisted father figure to that. But we also don't get enough... Like those characters don't ever interact, except in the first scene when they're introduced and the scene where Roman kills him. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. I just don't think the work was done into the killer. I think Aaron Kruger was like... But wouldn't it be amazing if I could retcon this whole thing and have it circle back?
2: And you're like, yeah, but then do the fucking work. Well, yeah, that's the thing. The the idea of that is great. Yeah. This Roman reveal just feels so daytime soapy. And that is not an insult to daytime (laughs) soaps. They have their merits. But that's then,
0: like, Texas Chainsaw, the next generation, right? Like, they know their place. They know what they're trying to do. And Scream 3 hasn't been living in the soap zone. No.
2: Again, based on the first two films, this is not the film that should have concluded this quote-unquote trilogy. Right. But again, like, you you take these circumstances. Like, you take Columbine. You take their fears over internet leakages. Mm -hmm. The push to comedy. Yeah. I understand why this movie is this way. Mhm. I don't like it, but I'm forgiving of it because I'm like, you know what? It was a tough situation. Right. And really I think that is the difference. So, I don't think people,
0: well, I'm sure there were some people who loved it, but not a lot of people loved it back in 2000. And people came around to it when they realized that some of the topics or the themes it was addressing are actually more relevant. But I don't think anybody can look at this film and say it's really succeeding in all of these areas. I think we've just discovered it's maybe a little more interesting than we initially gave it credit for, but all of these causal factors, this film was really starting from a bad spot, and yeah. it doesn't ever kind of dig itself out of that hole. I agree. And then we lead into
2: this ending. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious, what do you think of the moment where Sydney
2: grabs Roman's hand as he dies? It feels very Halloween H2O. Right. I wrote that in my notes. I said, oh, this is like Halloween H2O. I don't love it. (laughs) It it feels out of
0: character for Sid, right? I get that, yes, this is the brother you didn't know that you had, or the stepbrother
2: that you didn't know you had. I get that she's like, you know what? You had a shitty life. But you also chose to build your shitty life on destroying me, who Mm -hmm. literally had nothing to do with your plight. (laughs) Yeah. That's the easiest criticism
0: of not the film, but like of Roman as a despicable character. And we mm-hmm. talked about all of the horrible things that he insinuates like being raped did to Maureen and the film definitely comes down on well, this guy is clearly messed up, fucked up, misguided, and so on. But it's also weird that Sidney's then like, oh, I kind of forgive you in your dying moments.
2: Also, cause this isn't in the alternate endings, but there's the line where he's like, he knows he's lost. He goes, Mother's dead, and there's nothing you can do about it. I still got to make my movie. Right. And then she goes, Stab 3, right? Now, in the alternate endings, we don't have those lines. It just cuts to her stabbing him, going over. Stab 3, right? Ooh, stabbing him. Mm-hmm. I hate, like, okay, Mother's dead, I still got to make my movie? Like, wh- why? Why Why did you want to make a movie? Why was this your grand scheme to make a movie about this? Because it's meta, because he's a director. Eh, <laughs> whatever. Oh, you have an issue, though, because... Dewey kills him.
0: Yeah, again, it's not my favorite part. I like the fact that the kill shot has always been given to women because this franchise is inherently feminist as fuck to me. It's been given to Sydney both times before this. Well, yeah, but I mean, Gale
2: has always gotten in like a good shot, right? Right, right, right. But, but the the blow to the head has always been Sydney before this. Yeah. And this film feels like it's saying, oh,
0: well, now it's Dewey's turn because he's never gotten to do this. So again, we get a play for comedy where Dewey can't figure out how to stop a killer with a flak jacket on.
2: And then he gets the killing blow. And I just, you know what? I like Dewey, but that should be Sid's kill. It almost feels like they're like, well, fuck you, Nev Campbell. You weren't available. So we're going to let David (laughs) O'Keeffe do this. No, I think it's them trying to spread the love to the three princes. No, they are. But it doesn't make any... Again, for your concluding chapter of your trilogy, why are you going to break the tradition? Maybe they thought they were being clever, but it doesn't work. (laughs) Okay. Okay.
0: So that is the end of the film, but then we get this lovely kind of coda where mm-hmm. Sid is now willing to leave the gate or the door to her house open, and we see that Dewey and Gail are going to give it another go. And Kincaid is also there.
2: <laughs> Literally, it's like dot, 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 and Kincaid is also there. So they shot three endings. They shot one with him in a sling, which is what we get. They shot him without a sling, and they shot an ending without him there. Oh because they didn't know what was going to happen with this character. Right. We're shooting for all possible options. I just... So I think the last shot of this movie is fantastic. Like her choosing not to lock the door or whatever. I think it's great. Yeah, it's really powerful. That's it. Okay, that's (laughs) it. Yeah. I think
0: had this been the end of the franchise, this would have been a great way to leave these characters. I remember feeling satisfied that they had gotten their happy endings, but that they were hard-fought happy endings. And mm-hmm. this seemed like a good place to say, you know what? And then they go off and live their happy lives. So that was satisfying back in the year 2000.
2: I think the important distinction, too, between this and 4, so this ends with, like, Sydney's conclusion, whereas 4 ends with Jill, four is like we want to start a new trilogy and then we didn't make enough money absolutely and i still like the ending of four had we not gotten scream five or if it wasn't in the cards for us to get scream Mm five i still would like scream four's ending as a franchise close i think it works really well Uh, but it's so different from
0: this right I mean, maybe this is the difference 11 years makes, right, is we were culturally in a very different time where we were thinking about how social media changes people Mm. and makes people narcissists and more prone to (laughs) acting badly for publicity. So I, I think four is very much a sign of the times, whereas in 2000, particularly, they were like, you know what, we've done this for three
2: years, we're happy with these folks, let's let them have their happy ending. Which I get. But the people that hold the good ending of three against four, I do understand that, right? So yeah, but nevertheless, I think again, as much as I've like complained about Shout this movie, this movie. Oh no, I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I think it's fine. I'm yeah. glad we have four. I hope I will be glad that we have five. Right, but I think it's fine. It's just like as a standalone movie, it's fine. It's just not the franchise closure this this series deserves. Yeah. This is watchable.
0: You can find (laughs) a lot of fault in its logistics and its plot, even in some of the characterizations. I think if you're watching for Dewey and Gale and Sydney, this is actually pretty okay. And at the time, I felt mostly fine with this being the end of the franchise. But you're right. I am glad that we get to continue this journey. I know a lot of people are sad that Sydney has to go through more trauma and more pain. I think sometimes I'm just also happy that I get more time with these characters. Yeah. Like selfishly, I yeah, I just yeah. want to see what happened to these people after the story. I don't want that to end.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. It is selfish, but like they're not real. So <laughs> I mean, they're, <laughs> so they're also we can not be real.
1: Selfish. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I think it's a
0: testament to what Wes Craven and to great extent Kevin Williamson did in creating and crafting these characters that we are so invested. Like, you don't see the kind of internet debate about whether a character is going to live or die. Like, we've got a new Halloween coming
2: out this year. And no one gives a shit. <laughs> I mean, people care. No, but no one's like, is Lori gonna die? I don't know, man. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, it doesn't help that they also announced they're making two at the same time. So we're all pretty sure Laurie's going to at least live to the end. But
2: um, I feel like we've maybe gone long on Scream We we have gone very long in this episode. So (laughs) I will just say, I hope that Scream 5 satiates us and our hunger for more Scream. Okay. I mean, I don't know what you're talking about because there is no Scream 5. It's just Scream. It's just Scream. 5 Scream. No, it actually is just Scream. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been our longest episode to date. I'm really happy that we've done this. I never thought I would have this much to say about Scream 3 of all fucking things. Oh, God. But, you know what? Listeners, let us know. I know we... I know this movie has fans, and I know that people like it, and I also know that people fucking hate this movie. Yeah. So, when you are in the Facebook group talking about this movie, please be civil. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please be kind to one another. But yeah, so that'll conclude that. So, before we announce what we're covering next week, I just want to say... Standard housekeeping. Mm-hmm. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at Horrorqueers and join our Facebook Horror Queers group to hang out with other listeners. If you have a moment, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Apple Podcasts is a great one. And if you want even more horrorqueers content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com horrorqueers. Yeah, it's a new year. Give us your money. It's a new year! And because it's a new year, we will have the results of the 2020 Hereditaries, a.k.a. our horror version of the Oscars, which, it's better than the Oscars, I'm not gonna lie if I don't say so myself. Yeah. We'll also have episodes on CBS All Access's adaptation of The Stand, Apple TV's second season of Servant, and the controversial new film Promising Young Woman. And, as we already mentioned, that we're doing a month of threes this month. Our Mm -hmm. audio commentary will be on Final Destination 3, aka the best entry in the Final Destination franchise. Hot take. (laughs) But Joe, we have to continue this month of threes. What are we talking about next week? Alright, so
0: we tackled entry number four for my birthday pick last year, Trace, (gasps) but... I'm reserving a different pick for this year's birthday, so I had to get Hellraiser on the schedule somehow. So we're going to be talking about Hellraiser 3,
2: Hell on Earth. I was so glad you did the subtitle. (laughs) Because they all have subtitles. Yes, everyone. This is a kooky bananas movie. Um, You actually don't have to have seen the first two to watch this, except to know that in the end of two pinheads in a pillar.
0: Yep. We will
2: take it from there next week. (laughs) That's it. So... On that note, y'all enjoy Hellraiser 3, but we can cross out Scream 3.
0: Indeed,
2: and cross out Horror Queers for our brand
0: new year.
1: You've made it to the end of another
0: Bloody Disgusting Podcast. Congratulations. If you like our programming, consider searching for other Bloody Disgusting
1: Podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, Nightmare on Film Street, and more.